Howdy, y'all, and welcome back to Playmakers Corner Podcast. I am the title host for today, Cody Stoffer, but I will be joined by Coach V as well as Gideon today as they recap some games that they went to. And, you know, we actually were able to hit some pretty, you know, a decent amount of games this weekend as a unit. And it's the midway point of the Colorado football season. A lot of teams are going to be transitioning into league following this. So, you know, we do have our, you know, end of the year awards kind of starting to take shape and whatnot. If you think there's anyone that should be a candidate for offensive playmaker of the year, defensive playmaker of the year, most valuable playmaker or newcomer of the year, meaning, you know, freshman on a football team that should be a candidate for 1A through 5A, go ahead and let us know in response to this episode. But stay tuned for that. In this episode, we are going to go through the Thursday games, Friday games, and Saturday games, as we typically do in the first half of the episode. And then in the second half, we are going to discuss Playmakers of the Week as well as Power Rankings. So with all of that being said, let's go ahead and dive into this here and talk about what happened here on the Thursday scoreboards here before I do some big time summaries. And quick recap, Mountain Vista goes on the road against, I want to say, a Florida team in university and absolutely dominates. Austin Modrzewski has one of his best games, if not his best game of the season, going 17 of 21 for four touchdowns, 313 yards and no interceptions. The ground game was OK, you know, picking up two touchdowns between Chris Smith and Jack Blyce. But really, the air attack was just going absolutely nuts. Sean Conway caught for 100 yards. Japri Jennings caught for 82 yards on five receptions. Uh, Conway, that is, having three receiving touchdowns. And, you know, just spreading the ball out very, very well in this absolute domination over University that is a team from Orlando. So that was one of the big ones. Then, you know, Heritage, they get another win on the season over Rampart here. Uh, Heritage primarily fueled by, you know, a decent showing from uh, Noah Shen, I want to say is how you say it, or Noah Schoen. Uh, 6 of 11, 118 yards on the air and a QBR of 122.5. And then three rushing touchdowns, sending these Eagles flying high over Rampart. In some 3A news, Summit continues their undefeated season here with a big win over Wheat Ridge here. Uh, Jack Shearholtz having a phenomenal game going 22 of 29, three touchdowns and no interceptions. And then also toting the rock 16 times for 133 yards and two scores. So that's a playmaker of the week kind of performance over Wheat Ridge here that just didn't have a whole lot of answers to Jack Sherholds here. Moving on, you know, Thunder Ridge, we even got some interesting information here that there was a quarterback change to end this game. But the Thunder Ridge defense did play phenomenally here. Uh, Tevin Stokes in his first varsity start had some struggles here throwing four interceptions, but he is a freshman. So I think that this could be an upwards trend here. And then Braden Monroe had himself a solid game, seven receptions for 69 yards. And overall, you know, just a, a very hard fought game by the Chaparral defense and, you know, holding this Thunder Ridge attack to only 21. But I believe both these teams will be heading into league play next week as well. So that'll be something to keep an eye on. Eagle Crest, they score a huge win over Lakewood on the heels of uh, classic performances from Diego and Peyton Taylor. Uh, Diego Kearns, that is. So no surprises there. Sierra gets a win over Mitchell here. Sierra actually, you know, this is their first win on the season, snapping a four-game losing streak 
And, you know, being able to finally pull one out after being so close in weeks one and three against Littleton and Liberty, they finally get some success over Mitchell here. And, you know, part of that comes from a great passing performance from uh, Stenklewicz. He was 8 of 10 for 238 yards, 3 touchdowns, and no interceptions. And then this ground attack totaled 379 yards and 5 touchdowns in what was a big-time win for Sierra to give them their first win on the season. Moving forward, there was the battle for Longmont between Skyline and Longmont here. Last year, Longmont took it, and this year, Skyline gets some revenge on the heels of a fantastic performance from both Caden Box and Logan Miller. I mean, look, Caden Box, he was 20 of 27 for 376 yards and five scores. Logan Miller had four touchdowns of his own on 10 receptions for 290 yards. I mean, these guys just have such a legendary connection here. And boy, did they turn up. You know, not to not to say that nothing happened here for Longmont. I mean, Colby Holmes had himself a very solid game. This is a very young team. And I think that this is a team to keep an eye out on for the next two years as far as taking big leaps forward. But they were just overwhelmed with the experience and the rapport of Skyline with that Box to Miller connection. And Box or Miller both having Playmaker of the Week type of performances. Absolutely. Thompson Valley gets back in the win column with a 21-zil win over Riverdale Ridge. Then as far as Pueblo goes, there is a couple of Pueblo matchups. You'll hear about Simon or hear from Simon on one later. But, you know, first there was Pueblo County versus Pueblo Central. Pueblo Central outlasting Pueblo County 44 to 28 to get the dub. This was in huge part thanks to a ground game that included Amari Brown's 26 carry, 301 yard, three touchdown performance for Pueblo Centennial. Looking forward to, or Pueblo Central, my bad. Looking forward to the Pueblo Central versus Centennial game. That's what's on my mind on October 7th. I will be at Dutch Clark Stadium. But Pueblo Central, they keep it rolling. This actually puts them at a record of three and two. So, you know, they're back above 500 and then they will be playing Pueblo Centennial is their next game. So they have a bye week this week. So it should be a really interesting game between them and Pueblo Centennial. Pueblo Centennial, they've been playing some pretty tough teams and they're sitting at two and three as of right now. And they've played some 4A teams as well, like Widefield and Cheyenne Mountain and Discovery Canyon. Well, not Discovery Canyon, but uh, you know some tougher teams as of late. And so they are battle tested and ready for that matchup just as much as Central probably is. Now, Grandview, they get a dominant win over Pomona here. Not Can't say that I'm too surprised. They were up 35 to nothing heading into the second half. A little surprised that I didn't see another quarterback get some more carries or some more attempts here. But, uh, I mean, yeah, just a dominant win for Grandview here. University, they find themselves in the win column over Highland here, a reeling Highland team. They win 48-8. to It looks like there was a change at quarterback. It looks like uh, Croissant, I want to say. And he tagged us in Twitter. He was 8 of 8 for 148 yards and two touchdowns in this big-time win over Highland. And then, in addition, he also had another 84 yards on the ground of this university's 300 total yards on the ground and five touchdowns. Look, Highland, they're not the strongest team, per se, but this is a good win. And it looks like they might finally have found an answer at quarterback following the Johnny Wyrick, you know, experiment, one might say here. But that is actually their first win of the season. And boy, does it come right before league. You know, I think that if they hit their stride correctly, they have a chance to compete for league. But they are going to have to probably win out or only lose maybe one more game if they do want to make the postseason. 
for the second year in a row. So good on University finally getting back into that win column and maybe having a solution at quarterback here. Now, last but not least, well, I shouldn't say last but not least, but the most exciting ones that we didn't attend was, you know, the Pine Creek versus Mullen game. This game was crazy. I don't know if anyone saw any footage of this, but it was so foggy that people in the stands couldn't even see the field. And, you know, these teams were still trying to pass and whatnot. And it was just a very interesting game. Look, Pine Creek, they rode an explosive second and third quarter to win this game. Mullen was actually up seven to nothing heading into the second quarter. But then you get four consecutive unanswered touchdowns from Pine Creek that puts this game away. And I mean, when it comes down to not being able to see and you can run the ball, that's the formula here. Look, Aaron uh, Waymeyer, I want to say for Mullen, he had himself a respectable game, putting up 131 yards of his own. But this Pine Creek rushing attack is just so dangerous. Miller and Core combining for over 260 yards. That's really hard to combat. And so, you know, it's it just be like that sometimes. And uh, Pine Creek wins this epic fog bowl of sorts. Uh, thanks to, you know, contributions from all sides of the ball, obviously running the ball very well, but special teams and defense also playing lights out uh, following that first quarter, basically. And then last but certainly not least, you know, this was a top 10 power rankings matchup. And I think it's a very interesting game here between Bear Creek and Fruit of Monument. Look, um, Bear Creek had to travel to Fruit of Monument, Fruit of Monument coming off of a narrow loss to Grandview and Bear Creek kept right up with them. I'm, I won't even lie i was not expecting this here and you know bear creek they only lose by four points to fruita monument and uh you know part of that is fruita does have to come back here bear creek they have a 27 to 21 lead heading into the fourth quarter before fruita monument figures it out and uh you know they recover a fumble and just get a couple of lucky breaks here um to to close this gap but i mean you know Fruit of Monument, they, they turned over on downs with a score tied at 21s apiece. Then Bear Creek, they get a passing touchdown from Adrian Rico to Matai Alawa, I want to say. But they miss the PAT. That ends up biting them a little bit here because then you can't score a field goal later in the game. And Fruita, you know, Corbin Roel, he had a two-yard rushing touchdown. And then they get the PAT to take that one-point lead. And then Fruita, they do drive with eight minutes to go. And they only leave one minute for Bear Creek to try and respond after kicking a 34-yard field goal. And that's just not quite enough time for Bear Creek here as they just narrowly fall. But that is Bear Creek's first loss on the season, so I don't know if we will punish them that hard for that loss. Now, as for games that I was able to attend, the game I attended on Thursday was Stanley Lake at home at the NAAC versus Thomas Jefferson. And this was, you know, an exciting game. I mean, there was 69 total points scored. Nice. And I mean, there was a ton of touchdowns, but it was not the most diverse game I've ever seen. Something that's kind of crazy to talk about here is that, well, okay, on this first Stanley Lake drive, they run left, run right, get an encroachment, run left, first down, end goal, run right, shed tackle, touchdown. And, you know, I put here that the offensive line moves very well laterally and, you know, quickly put together like swings and stuff uh, is complemented by very competent and quick running backs here. So, you know, the line moves very, very well. Thomas Jefferson, they get the ball. They go three and out uh, courtesy of an aggressive Gators front seven. And then they run, run up the middle, short pass, 
there's a touchdown, it gets called back by a penalty, and then they run again, and this one gets a touchdown. And I just put that their blocking scheme is so effective, and you know, their backs are willing to cut inside, and their receivers are solid downfield blockers. And you know, the walls that they create and the lanes that they create are just like so easy to navigate. And then the backs that they have are able to get to those spots in time. Uh, Thomas Jefferson on their next drive, they commit to the interior run and find success, you know, with short gains or eventually ripping off a big one up the middle to pull it back within a single touchdown. Uh, Stanley Lake, they continue to run on the outsides here, just absolutely gashing the Spartans. They cannot stop this Gators rushing attack. And eventually the Gators go up 21 to seven. Thomas Jefferson, they respond. They're getting good blocks. The blocks are getting downfield as well. And then they eventually do a toss left to bring the score 21 to 14. And then with six minutes and eight seconds left in the first half, Thomas Jefferson finally found a way to stop the Gators, but it's a shame that the way that they found it is actually illegal. They get called for 12 men on the field on one of the only tackles for loss that I saw from either defense on the night. And the Gators eventually grind it out and score again with five minutes left in the half. Braden Smith, he had a phenomenal game here with, you know, only carrying the rock four times, but scoring three of those times and ripping up some long gains, including that 31 yard run prior to half. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, look, they try driving here, but eventually they call their first timeout with a minute 27 left in the half. And this is just not an offense that's designed to score very quickly. I don't think that they have a ton of faith in their junior quarterback, uh, Doran. And they even try a toss to Herbie Martin at the end of the half to try and score. And he tosses up and it gets intercepted. So at halftime, you know, Stanley Lake, very in control of this game, it feels like. And they're up, you know, 29, 13, I suppose. And Thomas Jefferson, they really needed to score at the end of the half and they needed to score coming out of the half. In the third quarter, Thomas Jefferson, they have the ball for six minutes and they eventually score, but they do miss the point after touchdown here. And, you know, Stanley Lake takes up the rest of the quarter here and scores and gets a two-point conversion. So they are riding high right now. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, they have six minutes and 47 seconds left. And they just, this, like I said, the offense is not designed to score quickly. And Thomas Jefferson ends up losing this game eventually with Stanley Lake uh, just being very opportunistic and gashing this defense along the outsides. They win 43-26. to Notable performances from this game. Herbie Martin, despite the interception on the toss, still had three touchdowns for the Spartans and 155 yards. And then Damon Ramos had the other rushing touchdown for TJ. And then for the Gators, they ran for six touchdowns. Like 10 touchdowns in this game. That's insane. It's absurd. And yet it was still just a little bit of a snooze fest with the rushing attacks. But I mean, Stanley Lake, they run for over 400 yards. Blake Stout puts in a really good case uh, just with his constant 14.4 yards per carry ending in 244 yards. On the defensive side of the ball, I do want to give a little bit of a shout out to Jackson Fowler, I believe, for the Gators. He had 14 total tackles. He was flying all over the field. And then, you know, they did total up for seven tackles for loss. Cannon Frost, somebody who also played on offense, he had a couple tackles for loss. And Brecken Geyer for the Gators also had a couple of tackles for loss. And then Liam Smarr is credited with a hurry. And then Cannon Frost also had an interception. Uh, that was that pop fly to end the first half here. So, you know, they got some good plays out of it. Uh, Thomas Jefferson... 
you know, on their defensive side, to be fair, uh, Tepper Brown had a tackle for loss. And, you know, Shabazz, uh, he's been doing his thing all season, and he ended up with eight tackles, especially because they were running so many sweeps. But, I mean, just the interior line just was basically a non-factor because they just kept running around that Thomas Jefferson front. And so, you know, Stanley Lake, they got to be feeling pretty good here heading into league play. They have... I think that this record is even better than what they had heading into league last season. So they've got to be pretty stoked. Thomas Jefferson with some serious questions to answer. I don't know if this is a playoff team for the third season in a row. But Stanley Lake, they're 4-1. They have wins over 5A teams like Westminster and North Glen. But their league will test them as they will have to play golden bear creek and dakota ridge and then you know i think that heritage grand junction could also be challenges as well but that was the thursday game that i attended i'm gonna go ahead and pass it over to coach v who attended the cherry creek and regis game all right what's good y'all welcome back to the playmakers corner podcast i am one of your hosts simon villianos and i went to this cherry creek versus regis jesuit game here on september 22nd 2022 this was a battle of top five teams and 1a cherry creek obviously being number one and you are defending state champions and reaches jesuit a top five team having upset valor in recent weeks and looking to potentially get another upset in this game and so here's how this game went down to start this game cherry creek would actually get the ball first and you know what they've had a one would say a carousel of quarterbacks you know obviously there's that thing in uh the press conference before the season at media day where coach Dave Logan did say that they would try to you know work with a couple different quarterbacks see who would fit but going into this week it's like week four week five or so you know it looks like they have decided on a quarterback for now in starting junior quarterback I believe Aurelio Marchio uh his brother or sorry his cousin Nico was actually a quarterback over at Regis before transferring to Arizona he was a big time three-star four-star guy so that's just a cool little storyline there but he started at quarterback but Cherry Creek was very determined to pound the football until Regis Jesuit could stop them um, because they've had a lot of success doing this to other teams like Ralston Valley, a team back in Ohio, which is a powerhouse in their own right and whatnot, and multiple other teams since coming back. And so they were going to run it. And Bubba Tan, uh, Carlson Tan, uh, Bubba Tan, like I said, he got the party started and he just, I mean, he got carry after carry and was just ripping apart this Regis Jesuit defense this uh, Cherry Creek offensive line were just blowing holes wide open allowing him to get a lot of yards plus more after the initial hit as he was just going and honestly Cherry Creek would only attempt like two passes one of them was incomplete I mean, it was just a miscommunication. Nobody was there for it, so that happened. It didn't matter as Bubba Tan would, you know, still get first downs just marching down this field here. Uh, they would complete one pass, Aurelia would, to Ishmael CC on a nice crossing route uh, and first down on fourth down to get them in the red zone. And basically... 
Bubba Tan would go ahead and end this drive after powering most of it with a nice little touchdown and the lead at the 7 minute 3 second mark. Cherry Creek taking that 7 to 0 lead. Now Regis Jesuit, they take over here led by their quarterback Xander Carroll and they just struggle. They try to run the ball um, but against this D1 front 7 defensive line, they just couldn't get anything on first down there stuffed. On second down, Alexander Carroll pitches it to his running back on number seven, who does get a first down here. Uh, one of the rare first downs to get here in the first half. That's Dylan McCullough, by the way, uh, who did get that first down. But then a couple plays later, it is third and 13 after another short run and an incompletion. And so on third down, Xander Carroll, he drops back, but... I, I don't know if he's just sensing the pressure wrong or what, but he does try to scramble a tad bit too early, and he gets stuffed by easy right to go ahead and bring up a punt with about 4 minutes 58 seconds left here in this first quarter. And so Cherry Creek, they take over on the 16 here. Raylio Marquio, he kind of gets something going. He finds Kyrie Johnson for a nice 4-yard gain. Then it's Jordan Heron who gets subbed in for Bubba Tan here. Uh, kind of the lightning to uh, Carlson uh, Bubba Tan's thunder, if uh, you want to say. But he gets a couple carries, makes a third and one. And then he breaks a 50-plus yard run here. Gets them a first down in the red zone. Um, and they go ahead and try to take a shot to Ishmael CC on the fade route. Unfortunately, it was an amazing catch, but they rule him out of bounds. Then they go ahead and toss it to Jordan Heron, who basically walks in for a 20-yard touchdown. Great blocking here and a great run by Heron, but a holding penalty, I believe, goes ahead and takes that away. And then another miscommunication on a pass play where Markio just kind of throws it to nobody there, uh, just brings up an incompletion. And so it's 4th and 14. They're still in the red zone, so Cherry Creek, they decide to kick a field goal. And it's no good. Um, it was about a 30-ish yard field goal there. And so Regis Jesuit, they get started here on the 20 with about 2 minutes 58 seconds left here in the first quarter. Trying to get something going. On first down, they get a huge, uh, or Cherry Creek gets a huge tackle for loss. Bring up second and 13. After that, Logan Brantley gets another big tackle on an outside run. Limiting that to only a 4-yard gain, making it 3rd and 9. Then Alexander Carroll, he throws it to number 80 four here who makes a great catch um it was kind of near the sideline you know so he was aiming towards the sideline uh but number 84 that is joey thing joey grand i want to say he is out of bounds and so that brings up fourth and nine and so they punt it and so cherry creek takes over with about a minute left here in this first quarter trying to get something going here and so that starts with bubba tan getting a, a nice physical run for a huge 20 plus yard gain and a first down that would also put them across midfield there uh, and then right before the quarter ends Bubba Tan gets a nice six yard gain bringing up second and four now second and four here Tan up the middle he gets a first down there does his thing uh, a couple plays later it is third and seven Mark Yule takes a shot downfield on a rollout but it is short and incomplete bringing up fourth down here and so Cherry Creek, they decide to go for it here. Uh, take another shot downfield, but it is 
Well, the ball is thrown out of bounds, and so it is incomplete. And so that's a turnover on downs. Regis with another chance to potentially get on the board. Now, before they can even start this drive, there's a delay of game. And so it's first and 15 when they get going here. And so Xander Carroll, he goes ahead, uh, drops back. Winds up his arm and throws a beautiful ball to number seven. That's Dylan McCullough. And he reels it in for a nice 30-plus yard gain here. Um, just an excellent catch and one-on-one -on -one coverage. Now, he goes ahead and makes that first down sign pointing towards the end zone. And the refs flag him for unsportsmanlike conduct. And so that kind of cues the vibes of this drive a little bit here. As that does push them back 15 yards. And so couple plays later it is third and eight third at around midfield uh xander carroll he tried to run it up the middle he is stuffed they try another run up the middle with the running back he is stuffed and so it's third and eight and then blake purchase goes ahead and kills his drive himself with a huge sack tracking down xander carroll making it fourth and 15 and they punted and so that penalty would actually be huge because one could argue they would potentially be in field goal range uh, if they did not have that penalty. And that penalty really just took out a lot of the air uh, in that momentum there. So there you go. Now, Cherry Creek, they're not panicking. There's 8 minutes, 27 seconds left here in the second quarter. And so here we go. Jordan Heron, he's in. He gets a nice couple yards, making it second and four. Another play after that, he pops it out outside, gets a first down here, uh, and they're moving down the field pretty well. Markiel finds Kair Johnson again for a nice three-yard gain, but then reaches Jesuit, finally gets pressure, and forces an incompletion, bringing up third and seven here. But doesn't matter, Jordan Heron, he goes ahead and gets the first down, um, just running through wide-open holes here, but a penalty is thrown here and they throw it on Regis and so that adds on 15 more yards going across midfield here uh here and he gets another nice run a short run here I should say gets about a yard uh and then uh Raleo Marco he finds Ishmael CC for a nice throw for a first down that would put them on the 27 then Bubba Tan he gets subbed in here gets nice five yards on a carry right up the middle uh they go back to that that makes it third and second here. And then they go ahead and put Jordan Heron back in. Uh, give him the ball. He runs it inside, then bounces outside. Great blocking by the tackles here and by the linemen of Cherry Creek as they go ahead and seal that outside edge off. And he just runs in 20 yards for a touchdown and the 14-0 Cherry Creek lead with about 3 minutes 54 seconds left here in the half. Well, then Regis Jesuit, they finally find some life on the kick return as number 17, DeAndre Barnes, goes off. He goes 60, well, really 70-plus yards to the house for a touchdown, making it a 14-7 lead as Regis finally gets on the board here. Now, Cherry Creek, they have 3 minutes, 36 seconds, plenty of time 
to go ahead and drive down the field here. And that's what they do. They rely on Jordan Heron a lot. They give him a couple carries. He gets him a couple yards. Then they go ahead and throw a screen to Jordan Heron. And he gets a nice 15-plus yard gain crossing midfield, getting them to the 35 here. Um, after that, Markio, he finds Kyrie Johnston on a nice out route. Gets about 15 yards. That puts them in the red zone. Then Jordan Heron, he runs up the middle for another first down, consecutive first down. That puts them about at the 5 with 56 seconds left. Um, call a couple timeouts, a couple plays happen. Try to throw the ball, including one where Markio throws uh, to the corner to Ishmael. CeCe makes a great catch, CeCe does, but is ruled out of bounds, unfortunately. Doesn't matter as Jordan Heron on an outside run goes ahead and scores another touchdown as Cherry Creek leads. 21 to 7 with 44 seconds left. Now, we just they try to get something going, but ultimately it is shut down as Blake Purchase unblocked just completely lays out Xander Carroll on his second sack of the night. And that will basically kill that drive and end the first half here. Cherry Creek leading 21 to 7. Not quite out of hand. If Regis could get some things going here, then they would be in a very nice spot. And Regis, fortunately, would take over here to start the second half. And that would be big as they start to put together a nice drive here, getting the ball out quickly, uh, getting a couple of nice runs here once that passing game opened up. And that's really what they do. Um, one of the bigger plays they do have is when Xander Carroll, you know, he's feeling the pressure. He goes in and flips it to his running back, Aiden Chase, number six, who gets a nice first down on a 15-plus yard run that would get them across midfield. It was a great head, heads-up play by Xander Carroll to avoid another sack and keep this drive alive. So there you go there. A couple plays later, Regis Jesuit finds themselves in another tough situation. It is like third and 12. And Xander Carroll, he throws a great ball on the comeback route to his receiver, number seven. That's Dylan McCullough. And he gets them a first down, keeping this drive alive. Then number six, that's Aiden Chase. Right after that, gets another run to go ahead and get a consecutive, another consecutive first down, putting them in the red zone here. And so... They have a chance to go ahead and score here. And they use all four downs. And on fourth down, it's like fourth and seven. It comes to a pass play. Uh, I believe Carroll, he aims for DeAndre Barnes. But he is laid out by a couple of Cherry Creek defenders. Pass is broken up. And so that's a turnover on downs. And that is a big, and I mean big, hit to Regis Jesuit's confidence here. Had a chance to make it a one-score game. Had a very long drive, uh, completing multiple passes and completions and uh, runs here to go ahead and get multiple big-time first downs on third and fourth down, only to come up empty. And so Cherry Creek, they take over, and they go ahead and put in a new quarterback to start the second half here. And that is number 15, Brian Rudden, the se a senior quarterback, uh, one of the lone senior quarterbacks, actually, on this Cherry Creek roster. Also, by the way, in the Instagram uh, updates, I said it was Ben Starr, so my apologies on that. But anyways, Brian Rudden comes in, and he kind of gets this thing going. They have Jordan Heron in. He runs the ball, but then Rudden, he takes aim for Ishmael Sisi, who just gets wide open. I've watched the play multiple times. I don't know why, but the corner thought uh, that... 
uh, Brian here was throwing to the receiver in the flat route, which led Ishmael CC wide open, and he goes ahead and burns this Regis Jesuit for an 80-plus yard touchdown, making it a 28-7 lead, a haymaker by Cherry Creek here with 5 minutes, 7 seconds left. Now, Regis Jesuit, they try to get something going here, but they go three and out as they are stopped here uh, which is really interesting because it was a fourth and four situation it looked like they were gonna try to go ahead and go for it here uh, but then they have another penalty thrown on them and that's kind of the story of this game a lot of penalties on Regis and it wasn't like you know it was just going the refs were going against Regis there were just bad penalties that shouldn't have happened to be honest with you uh, that Regis just kept committing and so that made it fourth and ten and you know I probably still would have went for it here if I was Regis but they decide to punt it and so Cherry Creek they go ahead and take the ball over on the 39 with three minutes 29 seconds left here in this game Jordan Heron gets a nice 15 plus yard rush uh, Rudden he makes a nice throw here um, or sorry, he the throw he makes a nice throw, but it is dropped. It's incomplete here. A couple plays later, it is third and nine, and so Brian Rudden he goes at it. He takes aim for Kyer Johnston downfield. He is in one-on-one -on -one coverage. The speedster that is a bad idea as he goes ahead and outruns his corner and gets a long, I mean at least a 40-plus yard touchdown on Regis Jesuit. Another consecutive. Haymaker here with making it 35 to 7 with a minute 24 seconds left in this game And that's basically it as Regis Jesuit loses to Cherry Creek uh, Cherry Creek winning the final would be 42 to 14 at the end here Cherry Creek remaining at number one a very convincing win um, This is the first time I got to see Cherry Creek this season and they did such a good job here uh, just watching them play and do their thing here. I mean, they really didn't have to pass the ball at all to win this game. They were doing a very good job with Bubba Tan and Jordan Heron just absolutely ripping apart this team. Also, shout out to Jaden Fox, uh, freshman running back. He got his first touchdown of his young career as well. He had a nice 50-yarder uh, at the end to... I think that was Cherry Creek's last touchdown to go ahead and end this game here. And so, shout out to him. This Cherry Creek offensive line did an excellent job. If I could give a playmaker or a player of the game award here, it would probably have to be um, either to Cherry Creek's offensive line or to the running backs. They did a very good job here. And then Brian Rudden at the end, I mean, you know, two shots downfield, accurate throws in rhythm to go ahead and put Regis away. That's clutch, you know, and so I'm not super worried about these Cherry Creek quarterbacks. Eventually, they're going to have to settle on one. Like I said, Aurelio Marchio, he did get the start here, um, and that's good for him. But Brian Rudden would come in and throw two touchdowns to kind of put away Regis Jesuit. So there's that as well. All right, so Regis Jesuit, they are now 2-3, and three, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, they beat Valor at the beginning in overtime. 
He beat Arapaho after they lost that close out-of-state matchup. And then they just dropped these last two. Uh, close one to Ralston Valley and then not a close one at all to Cherry Creek. Coming up, they have Douglas County. That's probably a game they should win. And then they play Pine Creek. That's a game that I'll go to. That'll be a big game for Regis Jesuit here. So that's what's up next for them. Then you got Cherry Creek here. They will begin league play. They are 4-1, only losing one game 13-09 to a powerhouse in St. Edward from Ohio. So, got to be feeling good if you're Cherry Creek here. But they uh, play Cherokee Trail, then Smoky Hill, Eagle Crest, Arapahoe, and then Grandview to end the season. That Grandview game will probably be for the league so we will see how it all goes down but there you go that is the recap for cherry creek versus regis jesuit and thank you simon for that summary on creek versus regis and with that in mind we will be transitioning to the friday night scores and so let's go ahead and jump into friday night here and all of the crazy action that went on here in Colorado football. I think that one of the very first massive surprises and biggest upsets of this entire week was 3A Palisades win over Golden High School. I mean, look, Palisade here, they have been struggling. I think that this was actually their first win this season. So, I mean, they've just had a really tough schedule up until this point. Their very first game was against number one ranked Roosevelt. Then their second game was against Grand Junction Central, a 4A team. Then they did lose to a 2A squad, but Delta is a really good 2A squad. And then they lost to Montrose, which is another top 10 4A team. I did predict that the beginning of this schedule would be insanely difficult. And it lived up to it. And so with their backs against the wall... Palisade does what Palisade does best, and they ran the ball like crazy. They had 62 carries for 341 yards and five touchdowns in this improbable one-point win, meaning that on one of those touchdowns, matching Golden's five touchdowns, they went for two and pull off the upset dub, much like Golden did just a few weeks ago against Denver South. So Palisade, with their season, you know, maybe already over, but their back's definitely against the wall. They do get the win here. In some more 4A versus 5A matchups, Pueblo West faced the far Northeast Warriors, and they win 28-14. Gavin Lockett having another solid game, 15 of 23, 124 yards, and two touchdowns. Jacob Trader out of the backfield, eclipsing the 100-yard mark and also getting the other two scores here. So it's worth to note that uh, far Northeast was missing some well was missing just that it factor from Draymonty Jackson I don't know if he was limited in carries for some reason since he only had four touches this game and in turn I mean this far northeast team lost four fumbles on Friday night and that is just not a winning formula here moving forward Northfield gets a big time win over Adams City 49 to 7 Christian Love throwing four touchdowns in that game. I'd say another upset watch here is definitely Rifle's win over Brush. Rifle gets 28 to 23 over the state runner-ups from 2A last year. Moving forward, Lyman with a massive win over Buena Vista in Buena Vista, 50 to 13. 
massive 100 yard performance from Gabe Shubarth. Obviously, trademarks with another incredible game, three tackles for loss. And Jordan Rockwell continuing to play mistake free, disciplined football and is, you know, I think a solid enough quarterback for this team to go far. And some other scores here. Legacy gets an upset win over Legend here. They jump out to a 17-0 lead here early in the game before Legend tries to climb back in with a score in the first half. Legend or Legacy then eventually goes up 24-7 entering halftime. And Legend just is never able to bridge that gap following that. Despite, you know, a pretty good performance through the air from John Brookhart, you know, going 22 of 38, 238 yards, three scores, no interceptions, it appears. But, you know, the rushing attack was a little bit stagnant here. This legacy team continued to surprise me week in and week out. I didn't know how they would fare with how much talent they graduated. And yet here they sit at three and two, I want to say. And so, you know, I'm very impressed with where this team has gone and where they've bounced back from too. Because I mean, they opened up the season with a very tough, short, you know, small loss, I should say, to Arapahoe 10 to three. Then they lose to a Florida team. And ever since then, they have been averaging over 31 points per game since the 9th of September. And they're about to enter league play. And I definitely think that they're going to push Mullen for that league title. And a huge part of that is Colin Lerma. I mean, 8 of 14, 111 yards, a touchdown, not too bad. But really his rushing attack, 23 carries, 156 yards, and three touchdowns. I think it just opens up so many opportunities for other guys. Brandon Sanchez also having a good game, averaging six yards per carry. I mean, this legacy team is just coming together at the right time. You have six different guys catching passes on this offense. The turnovers are very limited. Colin Lerma with the only fumble lost. I mean, they're just playing very clean football. They're getting from help from some help from their defense and some, you know, developing guys are stepping up. You know, Amari Bursi comes to mind with, you know, an 11 tackle, three tackle for loss performance along with a sack. They had two sacks this game. Just in the trenches, they're doing a very good job against solid teams. Now, moving on in 3A news, Kennedy gets their first win here against Littleton and Littleton gets their first loss actually in, you know, a win that maybe not everyone saw coming, but boy, Kennedy reminded everyone of their offense from last year and what that meant. Isaac Cisneros, four touchdowns, no interceptions, little, little on the completion percentage, but boy, it did RG3, Ron Gallegos, the third, and I'm not trying to steal the patent from Robert Griffin, the third. I, there's got to be some other way. Ron G3 or something here out of Kennedy. Uh, he benefits massively. Four receptions, 153 yards, long of 97 and two touchdowns. I'm pretty sure that Ron also took a kickoff back to the house. Yeah, one return for 88 yards. And so he just went ballistic, finally had his chances in this game. This Kennedy offense really opened up. And uh, Noah Herrera also of this Kennedy defense stepped up, as did Gabe Little. Noah himself having two interceptions, and Gabe Little recording three sacks, four tackles for loss, and 13 total tackles against this previously undefeated Littleton squad. Moving forward, I think that a really interesting game was Prairie View versus North Glen. Prairie View actually holds on to this one, getting what I would call an upset win at home over North Glen, 21-14. 
moving forward still. Woodland Park gets a win over Colorado Springs Christian, 31 to nothing, and is still gunning for that sole possession of number 10 spot. Big game between them and Manitou Springs coming up. Strasburg, they get a huge win here, running for almost 300 yards. Zach Marrero, especially impressive against Bennett. 16 carries, 221 yards, two touchdowns. Thomas Devlin with three rushing touchdowns of his own. They only had to complete one pass in this game. I probably would have continued to iron out the pass game, but I mean, a win is a win is a win, especially against Bennett just down the road for Strasburg. Now, in a very exciting 3A versus 4A game, Lutheran here, they lose to Montrose, but I think that they put up a pretty good fight here. And I mean, Lutheran, they actually get on the board first here with a Ryan Kenny touchdown in under two minutes. But then, you know, Montrose, they take their time scoring. They eat up about four minutes of this clock to tie the game. And so Lutheran with six minutes to go, they score in another two minutes to go up 14 to seven. And then Montrose eats up four minutes of the first quarter and even goes another three minutes into the second quarter before getting their next touchdown here, leaving nine minutes in the half before Lutheran receives the kickoff. And right here on this drive, this is where things start to turn on Lutheran. After playing a really solid game up until seven minutes ago, they unfortunately fumble and Montrose recovers and they eat up three minutes on this drive, pulling ahead for their first lead of the game to go up 21 to 14. And then the defense for Montrose playing really good and figuring out the Lutheran offense, forcing a Lutheran punt here. And so then Montrose gets the ball once again and goes up 28 to 14 with two minutes to go in the first half. Granted, Lutheran does kick into gear here and Riken Doggard passes for a 16-yard touchdown just prior to half, but they do miss the PAT. Lutheran is down 28 to 20 once we reach halftime, but Montrose does get the ball to start and they rip off a long run to go up 35 to 20 within the first minute of the third quarter. Now, if you're Lutheran, you're down by two scores and you really got to figure something out here. But unfortunately, Lutheran fumbles the football very, very early on this drive. Montrose not able to recover or, you know, capitalize, I should say, off of that fumble that they did recover. And Lutheran forces a turnover on downs with eight minutes to go. But after four minutes, Lutheran themselves turns over on downs. Little bit of, you know, defensive play here through the rest of the third quarter here. But then in the fourth quarter, I think that Montrose puts the final nail in the coffin of this game as they do score a touchdown with seven minutes to go to go up 42 to 20. Lutheran would score one more time in this game, not getting the two-point conversion. And Montrose, getting the ball with four minutes to go, runs out the rest of this clock. Now, Lutheran here, I don't think that this is, this is not a loss that I'm going to punish very severely, but I definitely think that this is a winnable game if you subtract some mistakes from some of these guys here. I mean... Ryan Kenny and Riken being your two, the two guys that touch the ball the most, both losing fumbles in this game definitely hurts you quite a bit. Riken, he's got to complete some more of his passes. He ended up 13 of 27 on the night, 264 yards and two scores. 
Ryan Kenny, he had a very solid average, as did this rushing attack, honestly, averaging five yards per carry on the night. Like I said, they were able to score four times, but I mean, just with the amount of turnovers that they have and the really long drives by Montrose and the long runs that this defense allowed is what lose Lutheran this game. Montevista with a solid win over Peyton here, winning 50-22 to in 1A action. In maybe not the most exciting game, but, you know, on the 4A level, uh, there was a game between Falcon and Lewis Palmer. This one went down to the wire with Falcon ripping off a long play here to win the game. It was tied at 14 apiece, you know, in this fourth quarter. But then with under a minute to go, there's a 34-yard pass completed for a touchdown for Falcon to go up 20-14 to and ultimately clutch this game. Now, in a crazy high-scoring game, you have Air Academy versus Coronado. And this game had 35 combined points in the first quarter and another 35 combined points in the second quarter. So... Coronado, they were up 21 to 14, and then Air Academy tied the game up at 35 apiece at only halftime. Then Air Academy rode a 20-point third quarter to jump ahead 55 to 35, but Coronado was down and not out, scoring 21 points in the fourth quarter to try and tie this game up or even take the lead, but Air Academy did get the one touchdown that they needed to go up and win 63 to 56 in this game. I mean, you know, there's a couple of passing touchdowns. There's some trick plays going on. Look, uh, Doherty here for Air Academy, 10 of 16, 161 yards and a touchdown. But Sam Beers, 31 carries, 381 yards, six freaking touchdowns, and then one for one for 72 yards and a touchdown as well on a trick play. Look, Joey uh, McLaughlin, on the receiving end of that 72-yard touchdown from Sam Beers, totaling for his 113 yards on the night. Just so much offense going on here. Over 600 yards of offense on just the Air Academy side here. And Coronado, I don't have any other stats, but man, they did put up 56 points. Sam Beers putting together a playmaker of the week kind of game. Now, for a really crazy game on the 5A level, huge matchup between two really good teams here, Rouse and Valley and Valor. And, you know, Rouson Valley playing, you know, a little bit of a comeback role last week. They would be on the other side of this one. You know, they jump out to an early lead here and, you know, they, they're leading six to nothing, eventually go back down and then they score a field goal before half to go up nine to seven. And then on their on their opening defensive drive, they do force a Valor punt and they capitalize off of this with a one yard rushing touchdown from Logan Madden. They go up, they they get up as much as 23 to seven in the fourth quarter. And Valor here with, you know, they, they get the ball with 11 minutes to go and they just put together a really good drive here in five minutes, convert on a two point conversion. You know, uh, Asher Weiner here with a one yard rushing touchdown and then Trey Stott with a two point conversion. Successful to bring this score within eight points, big time. Then the defense steps up, forcing Ralston Valley to punt in basically a minute. And Valor Christian, with the help of uh, Keith Bell Jr., gets into the red zone. 
and Jake Kreckler eventually capitalizes here with a 10-yard rushing touchdown. But Valor, they failed the two-point conversion with three minutes to go. What are they going to do here? Well, they're going to onside kick, and it's successful. They recover the onside kick on Ralston Valley's 48-yard line, and with, you know, two minutes to go, they, they get a couple of big plays here, and they get a 36-yard rushing touchdown to go ahead and take the lead with just about a minute to go. Rouse and Valley not left with enough time. And after being up 23-7 at the top of the fourth quarter, Valor Christian shows some serious grit and gets a much-needed win for both their confidence and their season. They end up, you know, having more plays than Rouse and Valley. They have nine more first downs, less penalties, more possession time by about a minute. And, you know, Asher Weiner here with his first full start here at quarterback is what I want to say is the biggest impact of that Liberty game. He has an all right performance, eight of 13 and an interception, but really on the ground. I think that some of the things that he was able to do and just his athleticism helps, you know, lead this Valor team and his, you know, just passion and fire here. He is a three-star recruit. He has 17 carries for 62 yards and a touchdown. Gabe Sawchuk, Finally looks to get going here. 10 carries, 117 yards, and two touchdowns. And overall, this Valor team, they do run the ball 46 times for almost 300 yards and four touchdowns. Just lots of patience in this game. And, you know, this Rouse and Valley team, they just have to be able to close this game out. They know what it's like to come back in that situation. Basically that exact same situation as they did against Regis last week. So for that, they will drop just a little bit for you know letting valor back into this game but i mean it's a quality opponent i think that either of these teams can beat each other which is you know encouraging for both these and potentially a playoff preview speaking of playoff preview i'm not sure if this necessarily is but fairview outlasts douglas county here to win this football game zach lewis with an incredible 23 carry 127 yard two touchdown performance on the offensive side and then you know on the defensive side of things, holding this rushing attack of Douglas County to only four yards per carry, headlined, I would say, by, well, okay, Fairview doesn't really have great tackling stats, but, you know, still a good win for Fairview. A close win, mind you, but a win is a win is a win. Florence reigning on Faith Christian's parade here with a 48-7 win on the road sparked or i should say highlighted by 41 first half points levi paxton solid 5 of 10 143 yards two touchdowns no interceptions which is good and this you know florence rushing attack looking pretty solid here and looking like the versatile attack that we were expecting north fork here with a win after only leading 14 to 12 over cedar ridge at halftime they score 10 second half points and they have 260-plus-yard rushers, one being Dylan Prescott with 168 yards and a tutty, and then Hayden Monroe, or Moreno, my bad, Hayden Moreno running for 182 yards and a score in this win over Cedar Ridge that they pull away. Durango versus Meade. Durango gets a big win over you know Meade in a revenge game here, I would say, winning 42-14. to It was really close heading into halftime, but then Durango just pulled away through ferocious defense and great rushing attack here. You know, scoring five touchdowns on the ground and then also a passing touchdown from Tyler Harms in this game. 
Kent Denver, they continue to have conversion problems, losing to Sterling 28 to 26. My bad. And, you know, missed PATs. This was, you know, a little bit of a red flag in the first week of the season where they lost to Platte Valley, and now they have lost to Sterling. Kent Denver season looking pretty dim right now, looking pretty dim. But moving on in some 5A action, Highlands Ranch High School with a close win over Smoky Hill. Highlands Ranch, you know, leading 10 to 8 at half and then shutting out this Smoky Hill offense for the entire second half as they go on to win 17 to 8. They have a nice performance out of Brady Shufford here who has 109 yards and a touchdown. But really on the defensive side, there are a couple guys to talk about. You know, Jason Wassell, he has 10 tackles, including one for loss. Uh, Eric Schnitker, I want to say, has a seven tackle, two tackle for loss performance, including, you know, just getting into that run game and just disrupting the flow. As far as sacks go, Brady Shufford, he also gets it done on the defensive side contributing for one of three sacks. Jason Whistle also having one of his own. And then this, you know, Highlands Ranch defense forcing a ton of turnovers. They had three forced fumbles. They did recover one of those. And then they also had three interceptions, three pass deflections. Uh, Jason Whistle having one of those interceptions. So he had himself a pretty solid game. And so did Tiernan Daly. However, I think that the Playmaker of the Week candidate is once again Isaac Engel, who had a fumble recovery for a touchdown, a forced fumble. He had an interception that he took back 40 yards and 21 tackles, including 18 solo tackles in this win over Smoky Hill. Highlands Ranch High School sporting a really good defense and definitely surprising some people here so far this season, going two and three and being pretty competitive in these losses to Fairview, Eagle Crest, and Roosevelt. They enter league play and will be trying to play spoiler over Rock Canyon on their homecoming night. Speaking of Rock Canyon, they did play Arapahoe High School and they avenged their loss from last year with a 28 to 17 win. Huge performance from Aiden Duda, 27 carries, 157 yards, no scores, but a guy who did find the end zone a couple of times, DeAndre Horn, he had three receptions for 43 yards and a massive high pointed ball touchdown for one of those scores. And then he also took a kickoff return I want to say to the, or no, 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 it was a punt return to the house for another touchdown. So really solid game out of DeAndre Horn here. They finally have him going. He hasn't really been, you know, the biggest impact guy, but you know, Rock Canyon here, I think that they're firing on all cylinders. Luke uh, Winogel having one of his better games, five of 10 for 79 yards, two touchdowns to only one interception. And, you know, Rappo here having a little bit of a worrying start two and three with their only wins being those first two wins. They are currently on a three game losing streak and go against a two and three Smoky Hill to start a league play. Both of those teams desperate for a win. Fortunately for Smoky Hill that, or I should say, fortunately for Rappo, it is at home. Bouncing a little bit back to two A action. You had Berthed versus Lamar here. Berthed with a big third quarter here to pull ahead and get ahead 18 to 14 you know that go ahead touchdown was from Alex Larson with just under a minute in the third and then Berthed with six minutes to go they intercept a Lamar pass on the 43 yard line to kill a Lamar drive and basically clutch this game from that point on just not leaving Lamar with enough time 
Pueblo Centennial, they lose a very close one to a solid Discovery Canyon team. They are two and three heading into, you know, they have a bye week. And, you know, there will be the Battle of the Bell rivalry game that I will be attending on the 7th of October against three and two Pueblo Central. So it should be a pretty good game here. But Discovery Canyon, kudos to them for clutching this game 24 to 21. Now, another team that had a solid defensive performance was Harrison in their win over Canyon City. They hold Canyon City to just six points, winning 26 to six and a massive performance from Davis Voss here. 10 total tackles, five tackles for loss, two sacks, and just being super disruptive. This Harrison front seven in general was just potent, having 13 total tackles for loss in this game. Rounding out the news with some 4A kind of action here, 4A, 5A action, Chatfield, they win the rivalry against Dakota Ridge 43 to 30, scoring six touchdowns. Jake Jones being responsible or having a hand in all six of those, throwing four touchdowns to just a pick and rushing for two touchdowns as well. Brock Narva having an incredible six reception, 136 yard game for three touchdowns. And this Chatfield defense forcing one turnover on Paladino here and also forcing two fumbles. Well, yeah, forcing two fumbles in this game as well. So Chatfield suffocates Dakota Ridge and gets into the win column for the first time this season. Once again, the most dangerous team is, you know, one that needs to win a football game. They are currently one and four and prepare for league play. And, you know, if they can go three and two in here, there's a chance that they make the playoffs, but uh, they have got to be ready for a league schedule, but they could potentially start off 3-0 depending on if Arvada West is looking to bounce back or not. And then finally, the last action of Friday that we didn't attend, I should say, was Ponderosa versus Palmer Ridge. I am still a little sad that I did not attend this game as it looked like an absolute thriller. It was 20-20 at the end of halftime. And this was versus our number one and number two ranked power ranked teams here. And, you know, Palmer Ridge, they hold on to win this game. You know, Zach Stryker, Ponderosa, he has a very solid game, scoring four touchdowns for Ponderosa here. And, you know, putting up a solid stat line, only throwing one interception, completing like 55% of his passes. Sean Davis also had a pretty solid game on the ground, running for 98 yards on 18 carries for Ponderosa. And, I mean, look, this was a battle of one and two, and Palmer Ridge shows why they've been here before, why they're number one. As, you know, Gator Robinson totes the rock 30 times for 215 yards and three touchdowns against a really tough defense, showing that durability, showing that power. And, you know, Derek Hester also having a really solid game here, rushing for two touchdowns of his own, but also, you know, throwing a touchdown as well. As Palmer Ridge scores 28 points in the second half, to Ponderosa's 14 to win this matchup. Now, as for games that we attended, I am going to first talk about Fossil Ridge traveling down to Arvada. I went to the NAAC for the second night in a row here and unfortunately was not much more entertained. I'm gonna go ahead and just kind of go through the first half highlights and then talk about my takeaways from this game. Fossil Ridge, they start with the ball and you know, Colton Pollock, he's stepping in here for an injured Tyler Kubot. 
typically a running back. And boy, was that pretty obvious when watching this football game. I mean, he's just a very special runner, able to change direction very, very smooth, I would say. And is just a really nice athlete in general. And boy, did he deliver on this Friday night here as he ran rampant. But anyways, on this opening drive, he, you know, he gets a few direct snaps and a few runs. He misses a pass, but then, um, you know, back-to-back -back direct snaps eventually leads to Fossil Ridge getting a score here. Arvada West, they get a ball or possession with nine minutes and 11 seconds in the first quarter. And so there's a nine-yard run and then another run for a first down. Ethan Cook recovers a bad snap and finds Brady Witherspoon on a cross to midfield. And then they're trying to run to set up the pass on this drive. But then a pitch right on third and one goes terribly awry. And on fourth and eight, you know, Cook, they try this pass here. And they lead the receiver a little too far on a seam route. And Witherspoon gets clobbered, forcing a turnover on downs with around seven minutes to go. Now, Mac Busteed, he gets a screen here to open up this Fossil Ridge drive. But then Pyatt for Arvada West blows up the run. And after two overthrows, they are forced to punt. Now, Arvada West on their own 23 with five minutes in the first. Cook shows good touch on a pass for a first down. But then another high snap eventually cost this A-West possession. I don't know what was going on with the snaps for Arvada West tonight. But it would bite them in the butt. Because Fossil Ridge, after getting the ball, you know, they tuck and run with Pollock here, who shrugs off a tackle, gets a first down, then they have a handoff for a first, and then a keeper for a touchdown. And just like that, they are up 14 to nothing with three minutes and 14 seconds in the first. Now, Arvada West, they get the ball here, run the ball, then they throw a running back wheel for a first before 23 on Fossil Ridge gets a tackle for loss. Then after a quick pass and a false start, setting up third and eight, there is a slant that just needs more juice and it doesn't quite convert here. So Fossil Ridge, they end up getting the ball and, you know, talking about the end of the first quarter here, like the, it starts to wrap up here with Fossil Ridge on their own 23 yard line. I just say that the Arvada West passing game is just a hair off and the linebackers cannot keep up with Pollock. Now in the second quarter, they eventually get to the ball to the 39 yard line they run for a first down, run for eight, then 22 breaks left for a nice first. There's a nice downfield block by, I want to say Trek here, but that may not be correct. But anyways, um, the quarterback keeper sets up first and goal. And then there's a big time sack by Chance on Arvada West team. And then an interception by Hamblin to save this red zone trip and still give Arvada West a chance, avoiding a 21-0 hole. But nothing comes of this possession, and they end up getting sacked on third down and have to punt Fossil Ridge with 7 minutes and 2 seconds on their own 49-yard line. They get a huge pass to number 89, Dominic Leone, who wins a jump ball down the right sideline to get on the other side of midfield. And then there's a couple of runs for a first down. And after a false start, you know, Fossil Ridge does have the ball on the seven-yard line going in. And, you know, Colton Pollock, he eventually, you know, <laughs> he eventually finds Dominic Leone again to conclude this drive on a whip route for a 21-0 lead with 450 in the half. Arvada West, this is a pretty good description here of a pass. 
Cook just, you know, leads one guy too far in one play, and then he throws an absolute dot into a tight window, and his receiver drops it, and they are forced to punt here. Arvetta West, when thing, you know, passes weren't exactly 100% accurate typically throughout this game, and when they were, they weren't always caught. So, tough night for Arvada West, honestly. Fossil Ridge getting the ball. They do have to punt, but then Arvada West, when they get the ball with two minutes and 44 seconds left on the clock, Ethan Cook, he, there's a miscommunication of some kind with a wide receiver, and he throws a pick six directly to a, to a defender to go up 28 to nothing. I eventually end up leaving this game at the conclusion of the third quarter here. Arvada West loses this game to Fossil Ridge 50-14. to Colton Pollock with a very incredible Playmaker of the Week-like performance here. 22 carries, 172 yards, 3 touchdowns, and then also a passing touchdown. Needs to clean up the pass game a little bit here. He's definitely no Tyler Kubat, but for a sophomore stepping in, beating a top 25 opponent, this went well. And this Fossil Ridge defense is just terrorizing. I mean, you know, they get 7 sacks on the night. Trio Frerichs with two of them, Julian Smith with two of them, and then three other guys with a single one apiece. They get three interceptions on the night. Uh, Luke Kristen with 64 yards on his return, and they also recover three fumbles. I mean, forcing six turnovers and getting it done on the ground is going to win you these big games here. Now, following this, I am going to pass it off to Gideon here to talk about Columbine versus Fort Collins. And then following that, Simon has a very exciting recap of the Canon game, Pueblo East versus Pueblo South. Stay tuned. Hello, everybody. This is Gideon. And today I'm going to be covering two games. The first of which is going to be Fort Collins High School versus Columbine High School. Now, this game was a lot closer than the 48-7 score implies. It was hard fought, and there were many injuries throughout the night. Every guy on both of these teams played their hearts out. Columbine was not able to simply waltz to those points, and Fort Collins made them earn every single one. We will start this summary with Fort Collins High School. Fort Collins started this game with possession and came out of the gates really strong. After an incomplete pass, senior quarterback Griffin Dackness pitched the ball to sophomore C.J. Johnson for no game. After another incomplete pass, the Lambkins were forced to punt, which was done by Joel Lopez. This one went out, but believe me that I will talk more about Joel Lopez later. On the ensuing defensive possession, the Lambkins were able to push a run attempt back about 10 yards, which was shortly followed by a forced fumble by Will Adams. Dackness threw to Joe Cottingham for 4 yards, followed by a throw to Demarcus Sanchez Ferguson for 5. Dackness was then able to run for a first down. Then, they lured Columbine into an encroachment penalty, but a high snap on the next play led to a loss. Dackness threw to captain Nicky McGuire to bring in fourth and inches after the refs brought out the chains. Dackness ran for the first down, but got seriously injured in the process. Griffin, if you're listening, we here at Playmaker's Corner wish you a speedy recovery. This injury caused the game's momentum to drastically shift as well. The Lambkins were making extremely good progress, at least for the type of team they were facing, and this is where it started to slow down. Easy Campos came in for Dackness and made a pass to Johnson that brought in third and three. 
Another high snap, however, led to a fumble. On the next offensive possession, Michael McDonald got a good return on the kickoff, but a sack on Campos and Johnson getting tackled for loss did not help things. They almost got a first down after Campos managed to outrun and outmaneuver the defense, but his five-yard pass went over its target. They then had Lopez punt, which went long. A Foco penalty brought in a Rebel first down, and they allowed a touchdown with 2 minutes 30 seconds left in the first quarter. McDonald had another good return, with a lot of good spatial awareness, but after this, the run was not working, and a couple of incompletions led to another 50-yard punt by Lopez. After some great coverage, the Lampkins almost forced a fumble, followed by Sean Topher forcing a fumble. On offense, Foco got tackled for loss and forced an offsides call heading into the second quarter. To start the second quarter, after a throwout, Campos threw to Joe Van Meter for 20 yards while under significant pressure. Kevin Lozano got a good short run, but a false start brought up third and nine. Campos threw to Van Meter again for a first down, but then Campos was sacked. This led to a field goal attempt that fell short. On defense, Jackson Barron had a good tackle, which stopped a run that would have been a touchdown. The D-line as a whole had some good defense, but they could not stop the exterior run, which let in another touchdown. McDonald got hurt on the kickoff, which was almost lost regardless. After an incomplete pass, CJ Johnson had himself a three-yard carry, and a pass to McGuire brought in fourth and three, which led to a punt. Lopez got a punt that went at least 50 yards, where Sean Topher pushed out the return. Barron had good air coverage, but a pass interference call made it so that the Rebels would get in a touchdown. Van Meter got a good 15-yard return on the kickoff. After an incomplete pass and a dropped pass, a QB scramble let Campos get a first down for the Lampkins after passing to CJ Johnson. However, two straight incomplete passes put things in jeopardy. Johnson caught a pass and ran for a first down, and a scramble throw to Andrew Learning kept the possession alive. Foco called a timeout with eight seconds left in the half, but on the ensuing play, Fort Collins fumbled, which was recovered by Columbine. To open the third quarter, Columbine opened with possession, and the kickoff was almost a touchdown that was saved by Lincoln Worthen. Tackles by Van Meter and Lopez kept things competitive, but Barron got taken out with injury, which slowed things down. McDonald had a push-out, Alex Augustine and Alex Cifuentes got good tackles, and the interior defense was strong for a goal-line stand. However, they were overpowered by Columbine's offense, and a touchdown got let in, with 7.15 left in the third quarter. On offense, the Lampkins called timeout with the same time on the clock, there was a holding call, and a pass got brought down for loss. This led to another good punt by Lopez, where even after a bad snap that made it so that guys were able to get within a couple of feet of him, he still hit a line drive punt over 45 yards. Van Meter got a tackle, and the sideline got a warning on what turned out to be a long touchdown by the Rebels, with 2 minutes 52 seconds left in the third. After an incompletion, a throw to Augustine made it third and five. The pass went over, which led to a third down, where Foco went for it. Columbine intercepted, but Campos had a great tackle to prevent the pick six to end the third quarter. To begin the fourth, the Lambkins were able to force a fumble on their own one-yard line, which was picked up by DeMarco Sanchez-Ferguson, who managed to get the ball over 70 yards. Campos then threw a 34-yard touchdown to David Morris, and Lopez hit the PAT to get the Lampkins on the board. However, on the first play after the kickoff, Fort Collins led in a touchdown with 3.42 left in the game. The kickoff was then recovered by Trenton Prince, and at this point, JV came in. 
The new QB, Luke Walker, got sacked, and Yastin Morales made a short run to bring in 4th and 7th. This led to a turnover on downs, which was about it for Fort Collins. The defensive playmaker of the game for Fort Collins High School was DeMarco Sanchez-Ferguson. Sanchez-Ferguson had the impact play of the night for either team as he returned a fumble for 70 yards that led to a touchdown. Not only this, but Sanchez-Ferguson had a great night working in the trenches. When the interior defense was at its best, stopping the Columbine run game, Ferguson was a large part of that. The offensive player of the game for the Lambkins was C.J. Johnson. Sophomore C.J. Johnson is a guy that was all over the place during this game and made his presence known. Johnson was the receiver on a lot of catches that occurred throughout the night, and he got a lot of yardage. When this game was at its most competitive, Johnson was doing well, and as a sophomore, I cannot wait to see how he improves. He's the type of guy that helps carry your team to the playoffs when he is an upperclassman. The playmaker of the game for the Lambkins is Joel Lopez. Joel Lopez is a great punter, kicker, and defensive back. Both of his in-game kickoffs went very far, and he worked very well punting, especially under pressure. Lopez, unfortunately, had a great opportunity to show off his leg tonight, and he showed out. During halftime, Lopez came out early and practiced his kickoffs from the 50. Only one of the practice attempts that I counted failed to get past the end zone. You heard that right. He was 9 of 10 for getting kickoffs over 60 yards. He also made a lot of really good plays on defense, which demonstrates his high motor with consistently good results. It's hard to put into words, but if you want to see a good kicker and punter and a good defensive back, make your way to Fort Collins High School and say hi to Joel Lopez. When I was about four or five, I started playing soccer, says Lopez, which I kept doing until I was in seventh grade. I loved the physical nature of football, so I started playing. Having older brothers will do that to you. They'll teach you to be tough. Now, the summary for Columbine. For the size of the team that Columbine has, they had some of the most disciplined warm-ups that I've ever seen, and it translated especially later in the game. However, opening the game on defense was Mason Moreno, who pushed the kickoff return out of bounds. Columbine played all-around good defense and forced an early punt. A run was pushed forwards by a pile, but followed by a run by Josh Schneider that was brought back for loss. Really early in the game, this run was not working, which was evidenced by a fumble. The Rebels could not hold the QB run and fell for an encroachment call. They were not stopping the run again, but they forced and recovered a fumble. James Leeson ran for a short second down, which was followed by Markane Taylor carrying a first down. Sorry if I am mispronouncing that. Reeve Holiday ran for the touchdown with 4.13 left in the first, and Julian Ruiz hits the PAT. Snyder got a really good distance on the kickoff. Once on defense, Will Adams got a good tackle, and Alex Cook got himself a sack. However, 6'4 defensive end Rocky Shields got hurt on this play. Peyton Wainwright got a tackle for loss to force 4th and 20 and a punt, which was returned by Taylor for 20 yards, which was brought back by a penalty. Joey Tanelli got a run, and then I witnessed what Cody calls one of the rarest plays in all of Colorado football history. 
Columbine quarterback Reeve Holiday threw a touchdown pass to Josh Schneider, whose hands it bounced off of and the ball hang in the air while Schneider fell to the ground. He reached up and managed to bring it in while on his back in the end zone. He then had to leave the game for a minute because he, the wind got knocked out of him. Ruiz hit the PAT and the Lambkins had the ball, but the Rebels played good defense to force a punt. They almost dropped it and lost it, but then Taylor managed to get a 20-yard run, but then the ball was lost on a fumble. On defense, the Rebels fell for an offsides lure to end the first quarter. The Rebels started the second quarter with Cannon Burchard swatting a Fort Collins pass out of the air. But aside from that, the air was not well defended to open this period, as they allowed a first down in that method. James Bassinger and Carlos Mendoza shared a tackle for loss, then the Rebels got a sack, which forced a punt from 4th and 20. After a first down run, 6'3 lineman Ian Turner went down and was out for the game. Taylor got a 12-yard run, followed by a 4-yard run by Snyder. Taylor then got a 25-yard run. After a penalty, the Rebels had to recover from a 1st and 20, and after Taylor had two straight runs, Holiday ran for a TD, and Ruiz hit the PAT with 4.55 left in the half. The Rebels almost recovered the kickoff and then forced a punt. During the punt, 6-5 lineman Vicente Chavez got hurt and was taken out for the rest of the game. Snyder got a good run on a lunge over a few guys and then got a short run. Taylor ran for a long gain, and then a bad pass got bailed out by a pass interference call. Snyder then got a touchdown run, and the PAT by Ruiz was good, with 138 left in the half. Snyder got the kickoff for about 40, Alan Pham got good coverage, and Cannon Burchard recovered a fumble to close out the half. After almost returning the third quarter kickoff for a touchdown, which got called back due to holding, Snyder caught and ran for 15 yards, and then Taylor ran for long, which was no good after blocking in the back. Taylor then ran for first down, followed by a lot more running by Snyder and Taylor. This running was facilitated by a lot of good blocking by the O-line, and Taylor was able to get a touchdown, but the PAT doinked the right upright, and the kickoff went out with 7.15 left in the third. The defense forced a timeout, and after a blindside penalty, Snyder got a 20-yard run. Snyder then got a touchdown on a 45-yard run, and the PAT was good by Ruiz. Another kickout went out of bounds with 2.52 in the third. Mason Moreno got an interception after good defense and ran for 45 yards with it to end the third quarter. In the fourth, after a false start, which led to a pitch to Taylor to, that led the Rebels to the one-yard line, there was a fumble that made it 70 yards the other way. After a while, the Rebels allowed a TD with about four minutes left in the game. Mason Moreno then got a touchdown with three minutes, 50 seconds left, and the PAT was good. Daxton Wood got a sack, and the defense put good pressure on the FOCO QBs, and this forced a turnover on downs. This basically closed the game for Columbine. Defensive playmakers of the game are Mason Moreno and Cannon Bruchard. Both defensive backs... Mason Moreno and Cannon Bruchard had a good night, with both having big tackles, being involved in fumbles and interceptions, and good air coverage. This duo is going to be hard to get over and get through as the year goes on, especially once the playoffs come for the Rebels. Offensive playmaker of the game is Markane Taylor. Again, if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, I'm sorry. But running back Markane Taylor plays much bigger than his frame, with multiple tutties and a lot of yardage. 
Taylor's pound-for-pound pound speed and power are only matched by one running back that I have seen on the high school level. And without Taylor as one of the heads of the dragon for the Columbine offense, this team would be much less lethal. A lot of the looks that he got over the course of this game were very small, and most running backs would not have been able to make those quick decisions. But he was able to get through holes that not even a penny could squeeze through. The playmaker of the game for the Rebels is Josh Snyder. Snyder barely got past Taylor for playmaker of the game, but his kickoffs gave him an edge. A running back slash kicker is not something that I've seen in a while, and the last one that I saw that was effective as Snyder ended up winning a state championship MVP trophy. Snyder had a couple more touchdowns for the Rebels and a lot of grounds covered, but his legs put him far enough ahead to get him playmaker of the game because of his kickoffs. I'm always looking for the backs of my hoggies, said Snyder. If they open a hole even six inches wide, I'll try to get through. I'll run through anything. In summary, I'm going to make the hottest of hot takes that's ever been taken. Columbine is a really good team. Though the score gap was wide, for a lot of the game, it was closer than it indicates. Not close, but closer than one would think. If Dakness had not gotten hurt, this game would likely have been much closer, at least within 20. Fort Collins has some pieces to continue to build on as they move into the future, with Lopez, Johnson, and Topher headlining. Columbine is, however, a contender for state this year, with a few concerns. Their line did weaken as the game went on, largely due to injury. It made me worry about a Yao Ming type situation, where you have great pieces, but you wonder if they're going to be able to stay in for big moments against teams like Cherry Creek, Ralston Valley, or Regis. An anonymous Columbine player stated that they do think they have what it takes to beat those caliber of teams if it comes to it, and they certainly do have a chance if their guys can stay on the field. Fort Collins, now 1-4, will play Fossil Ridge at Canvas Stadium at CSU next Friday, which I will be in attendance for, along with Pooter versus Rocky Mountain, which should be a fun doubleheader. Whoever wins, it will be the first win at Canvas Stadium this fall, which makes me really sad as a CSU Ram. The newly 5-0 Columbine will now move on to Pomona in a Thursday night matchup to start their league play in what is one of the toughest leagues in the state. Now, you'll hear more of me this episode, but on to the next. All right, what's good, y'all? Uh, my name is Simon Voyanos, a.k.a. Coach V, and I had the privilege of going to the Cannon game. Um, that is the game between Pueblo South and Pueblo East. It was the 47th Cannon game, one of the oldest rivalries in Colorado high school football, second oldest rivalry technically, and then one of the oldest rivalries west of the Mississippi as well, so in the entire country, um, but these two uh, would go ahead and show up to Dutch Clark Stadium for the showdown, Pueblo South winning the last three matchups here basically since 2018, Pueblo East looking for their first Cannon game win since then as well uh both having very different seasons here Pueblo East only losing one game on the season last week to a powerhouse in Lutheran Pueblo South struggling to get things going here and so we'll see anything could happen in a rivalry game first off I just gotta say the vibes in this game were immaculate 
packed stadium here at Dutch Clark, probably one of the biggest high school stadiums in Colorado with about 13, 14,000 people. And there are, I wouldn't be surprised if there are that many people. There are a ton of people. I love to see the banners uh, on both sides. You know, the cheerleaders are getting the crowd hyped up. The bands did such a good job. Uh, scoreboard, you know, had some very good graphics, by the way. Shout out to the media teams uh, for South and East doing their thing over there. It was hype. You know, you could definitely feel the hype in this game. And I was all about it. You know, and so here's how it went down. Pueblo South would go ahead and receive to start this game. And Pueblo East would go ahead and try to kick an onside kick, taking a page out of Lutheran's playbook from last week. And they would almost get it, but not quite. South would end up recovering it on the 43-yard line moving forward. And here's how this would go down. Uh, Caleb Ortiz, I believe, is the starter here at quarterback for Pueblo South. Senior quarterback. And he would go ahead and hit his receiver on a nice screen. That is Mateo Esquivel. But uh, this Pueblo East defense was there for it. And they go ahead and stop him short. And then right after that, a low snap. Uh, goes back a lot of yards here. Kills the vibes of this drive, really. And so Pueblo South <laughs> recovers it. Uh, but it is third and 23 and keep an eye, that was the first bad snap of this game, but there were plenty of horrible snaps in this game. Trust me there. And so that happened. Then Ortiz goes back to Esquivel here uh, on a nice little hitch route. That's good for about 10 or so yards. Um, they call an illegal formation penalty on South, but East goes ahead and declines it. And so that makes it fourth and 10 here. Uh, like I said, they're about on the 30 ish yard line because they started or sorry they're on the 43 yard line uh because that's where they started and whatnot after all that happened and Pueblo South decides to go for it and I'm not gonna lie in my opinion I felt like this was a very emotional decision when it wasn't the smart decision as I would have just punted it uh considering the struggle South had already on this drive and so they go ahead and try to throw and it is incomplete and Pueblo East takes over on the 43 going in with a short field to work on and so here's how it goes down Isaiah Garcia number 26 gets a nice first down after uh, a end around play here before they could even snap the ball they call encroachment on Pueblo South so it's first and five here now uh, but Luis, they roll out, they try to pass it, it's incomplete, but a penalty is thrown on East. That's a holding play, making it first and 15. Then Zayden Stevens, he tries to get some of those yardage back, uh, but he is stopped by number 25 of Pueblo South for a loss. That brings up second and 22. He tries to scramble again, doesn't get anything, and so it's third and 22, actually. Then Stevens, he scrambles on third down. For about four-ish yards, but they go ahead and call a face mask on Pueblo South. That is a big vibe killer for them, as that gives East some new life here. And makes it first down on the 19, just about in the red zone. Then they handed up the middle for about nine yards. Then uh, Isaiah Garcia, he goes ahead and gets a nice first down, making it first and goal. And then Zayden Stevens gets the first touchdown with his guy, uh, Mark. Key Sanchez here, yep, on the out route for a touchdown and the lead as Pueblo East takes the lead in this Canaan game 7-0 with about 6 minutes 22 seconds left in the first quarter. 
Now Provo South, they're trying to get something going here, and they get a couple nice yardage, would eventually get the first down on a passing uh, play on an out route, I believe. Uh, so that kind of puts them on the 49 here. Then Caleb Ortiz, he drops back. He's feeling the pressure. He's avoiding the pressure. And then he tries to throw the ball. Probably wasn't the greatest decision here. Well, it wasn't. As number seven, Sebastian Freeman would go ahead and pick it off for a pick six. Returning it to the house as East takes a commanding 14-0 lead with three minutes and 56 seconds left here in this game. Now South, they're trying to get something going here. Uh, a couple plays into this next drive. It is third and 10. Uh, they go ahead and make it fourth and short after a nice play here. Pass it to number one, Armando Manuel. Uh, or sorry, they give it to Armando Manuel on the dive on fourth down after a nice pass here. And he gets the first down just barely here at midfield. Then uh, they kind of try to throw it to Ray Aragon on a hitch route. Tries to make something happen, and he does, making a couple people miss, getting another first down. But then a couple plays later, the snap is once again low. Uh, the snap is fumbled, actually, and so they have to fall on it. And so that makes a third and 13 right before the second quarter here. Um, and so third and 13, they go ahead and pass it. And the pass is on the money this time, but it is dropped here. The woes are continuing for South, making it 4th and 13. And so they go ahead and punt it, and East takes over here uh, on the... Well, actually, uh, South attempts to punt it here, but the snap, once again, is horrible. Uh, absolutely kills them. And so East actually takes over on the 25 going in just outside of the red zone here. Once again... Bad snaps killing Pueblo South here. And so here we go. They go ahead and throw a swing route to the running back. East does. And he goes 25 yards. Has to leap over a defender and stretch out. But still gets a touchdown on a 25-yard swing pass. Making it happen there. And making this a three-score game here. As Pueblo East takes a pretty commanding lead. A 21-0 lead here in the second quarter. Now East, they're looking for a knockout punch here. And so they go ahead and kick the onside kick. South goes ahead and recovers that but literally on the next play after that, they run a play, and it is a fumble, and Pueblo East would go ahead and recover this fumble starting on the 43 going in. Uh, so far in this game, Pueblo East has worked with a lot of short fields. Only short fields, really. They haven't started outside the 50-yard line. Also, one of those scores was a pick six, so just keep that in mind. And so East, they have a chance to really put the nail in the coffin here early in the second quarter, and they drive down the field. And they do eventually get in the red zone here. Um, so here's what happened. It's third down after a dropped pass. That pass probably would have been a touchdown, to be honest with you. Uh, it was a great throw, but it was dropped. And so Zayden Stevens, he drops back. He's looking for uh, one of his players short because they're right in the red zone. They're on the goal line, basically. But it's number two, Mateo Esquivel, who gets a much-needed interception for Pueblo South, giving them a little bit of life as they go ahead and take over on the nine. Now... I'm not going to lie, what would happen after was 
ugly as South would just struggle to move the ball. And they would actually basically go three and out. They're on the nine, by the way, with nine minutes, 32 seconds. So they do have a chance to score here. But this drive was just ugly as, you know, they would basically go three and out. Um, at one point, it was third and eight. Then another low, bad snap would make it fourth and 15. And so that kind of kills the vibes there. And so South has to punt it. But unfortunately for Pueblo East, they would go ahead and rough the kicker here. And so that would give South an automatic first down as they start on the eight. Now, South, they're trying to get something going. But once again, penalties are killing South this time. Uh, legal block in the back. That does make this a second and 31. Um, we have a couple other things happen as well. You know, just stuffed runs and whatnot as east is playing really good defense and so eventually really not too soon after south does end up punting again but there's another roughing the kicker penalty um that kind of bails pueblo south out here and so they get another automatic first down on the 25 and so they try to do their thing. They're trying to throw the ball. It's incomplete. They try to run the ball. They get one yard. Um, then they try to throw the ball again. It's incomplete. It's almost picked off. It was not the greatest throw here on third down. And so they have to punt it here. And then they throw another penalty uh, right before the punt. It is a snap infraction. That means the center moved the ball too early. The center here, uh, either center or long snapper, is definitely a little bit rattled here. Uh, and so that's not great. And so if that wasn't a, I guess, bad sign of things to come, well, this would definitely be a bad sign as he snaps the ball and the snap is nowhere close to the punter. It goes way over his head. And just keep in mind, they started on the 25, so, and it's 4th and 14, so now they're on the 21. And so it goes almost 15 yards, almost 20 yards back into the end zone that's how bad the snap was and the poor punter he's forced to go back there and he basically has to make this the decision either you could pick up the ball and try to throw it away and east takes over i guess maybe on the uh 20 or so best case scenario but then if he gets hit then you know that's a fumble that's a touchdown or he could just fall on it and take the safety he is forced to take the safety as there are multiple East defenders there for it. And it's actually number 57. That's Dom uh, Benavidez who gets the big time safety there. He's credited with that. And so East takes a 23-0 lead. Plus, they go ahead and get the ball back. Now, it is not looking good for South at all at this point. East, they're looking to score. They are driving. But fortunately for South, they get a couple big stops, including a tackle for loss on a reverse, and then another another tackle for loss by number 77 of Pueblo South. That is Francisco Pacheco, who goes ahead and makes it third and 15. Uh, East, they're just trying to get something here. They throw it short, and it's 4th and 14, and so they punt it with about a minute, 39 seconds left. Uh, and it's a good punt. South takes over on the 11, having almost 89 yards to drive here. Still, though, it's 23-0. to zero. They have a chance to cut into this lead, make it a two-score game if they score before half. And so they're driving down the field here. They throw it short, uh, and so they it is complete. They get a first down. 
but there is also a penalty, um, and so that is thrown on East, and that gives South a couple more yards. That gets them to the 31. At this point, there is about, there's about, I would say, a minute, 15 seconds left in this game. Pueblo South, they're just trying to hurry and get something on the board here, whether it's a touchdown or a field goal. They just want to score, um, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. Now then South, uh, Caleb Ortiz, he goes ahead and throws a really short route to number 10. That's Nathan Martinez. Uh, and he gets ganged up by a couple East defenders, but somehow breaks loose, reverses fields towards the Pueblo South sideline. And he's running, he's running, trying to get a first down here. And then I can't quite see who it is. I do have the video of it, which we'll talk about later here. But an East defender, he makes contact with Martinez here and drives him out of bounds, way out of bounds. This was going to be a penalty regardless. It was going to be called a late hit, to be honest with you, because he could have just shoved him. Um, but at this point, he's kind of just driving him and driving him. And Nathan Martinez does not like that. And you could see it on the video. He definitely takes a swipe at him first. And then obviously the Pueblo East defender, he's going to smack him back. And so that's what he does. And then since they're on the Pueblo South sideline, a couple of South players get in on him and kind of shove that kid back. And then you see East players that were on the field go ahead and try to help out their teammate there. And there's a brawl that basically happens. You know, there's a lot of shoving, a lot of punching and whatnot. There are multiple times here. Uh, and I recorded a lot of it. And so... And we're going to make an announcement here at the end of this segment here uh, where you could see some of these clips and make, you know, go ahead and make a, I would say go ahead and make a decision for yourself here. But it happens, you know, there's a lot of shoving and whatnot. Obviously, this is a rivalry game and South, they're down 23 points. So they're obviously, you know, they're not happy about it since most of these players have never lost a Canaan game in their career yet. And they're kind of on the verge of that. And so, they're, you know, emotions are definitely high. And so there's a lot of shoving, a lot of pushing. At one point, I thought the fight was about over here. They kind of had them separated. And then a couple more players got into it. Uh, a couple East players uh, shoving some South players. And so they kind of take that down the sideline, down the field. Like they're just uh, hitting each other, shoving each other. Uh, South, I mean, they're into it. This South crowd is kind of getting into it too. I'm not going to lie. You could hear them in the background of the clips that we will show here uh, on our on our social medias. But it is ugly. It is definitely ugly. The refs are taking a long time kind of getting this figured out, uh, separating them. They're not really separating them, to be honest with you. Some tried at the beginning, but as this fight kind of just drags on and just goes on and like more fights continue and come up, they take a step back and let the police officers and coaches handle it. And finally, after probably around five or six minutes, they get some sort of control. And, you know, the refs, they meet in the middle, they talk for, wasn't a very long time, maybe two or three minutes. And then they go ahead and announce it over the speakers here. That's the end of the game. At the one issue, there's over a minute left here in the second quarter for sure. Uh, not even before halftime. They go ahead and call the game and they award the win to Pueblo East. And then the refs run off the field. And it is chaotic. The South... 
crowd does not like that at all. They want their kids to play the refs. You definitely hear that. You know, they're booing the refs. They're cussing a lot of people out, not feeling it. And I understand, you know, this is a rivalry game. You got to play it out. And honestly, I'm just going to be real. From my perspective and outside perspective as somebody who has not, you know, been to one of these games before, but was really excited to go to this one, I think... There really wasn't too much extracurriculars in this game. No late hits, at least that I could see, or that the refs threw penalties on. If there were late hits that happened in this game, the refs must have just missed them. And that's kind of on them for not regulating this game better. Uh, I'm sure there was talking, you know, in between plays. That was bound to happen. Uh, but other than that, I mean, you had those roughing the kicker penalties... Obviously, I don't think those are intentional because literally that drive took up almost 10 minutes of uh, of game clock uh, just for South to eventually punt it anyways. You know, or for South to, well, they couldn't punt it because the ball went out into the end zone, so that happened, you know. Uh, so I don't think they meant to do that on purpose. There was a block in the back, but that was on South, and that kind of killed the vibes of their drive. So that happened, but other than that, it was a pretty quiet game. Uh, not too much craziness, not too much extracurriculars. And so really, this was the first big, like, okay, unsportsmanlike thing that happened here. And so honestly, my thought was they're going to get this separated. They're going to kick out multiple players, even some coaches. I, know, I saw some coaches down there definitely chirping as well. You know, so I'm sure that's what the refs were going to do. And then they were going to go ahead and continue this game. Uh, but they just ended it, which I have never seen before. I've talked to a couple refs they have not seen before, you know, and, you know, in the history of this rivalry, I do not know if any of those games were ended at halftime because of this. So that happened. And yeah, I mean, and that was basically it. That was it. I mean, they didn't award the cannon to East on the field. They decided to do that at a later date. So I didn't stick around for that. Obviously, they just ended the game. Both teams went to the locker room. And that was that, you know. And so this game ended on a brawl. Uh, but really, I mean, you look at the videos here, uh, the East sideline, I mean, for the most part, they, they didn't clear the benches. You know, they stayed on their side. Uh, you had Pueblo East players that were uh, on the field for the play. They got into it, obviously. And then I would say mostly you saw a lot of South players, you know, uh, it was on their sideline. So it made sense. They There was some pushing there, defending players, trying to get separation. It, it was a lot of craziness that happened. And so... I don't know, but we'll see what happens. Technically, you need three quarters for a full Chassa game. Chassa might make an exemption here. I would be surprised if they made South and East play one quarter to make this official, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm just going to be honest, though. You know, Even if South had the rest of this game to play, uh, they just weren't doing a great job, you know, and it wasn't on everyone. I mean, the snaps were killing them. Whether it was on punts or play, like it was killing the vibes of this Pueblo South offense. And so, until they got that figured out, I wasn't sure if they were going to be able to put together a 30 yard drive, to be completely honest with you. Because uh, that's how bad the snaps were in this game. That has to get better. And then, obviously, 
giving East a lot of short fields wasn't really great either. Going for it on 4th down, 4th and 10 on the 40-yard line to start the game was definitely an emotional decision that I felt like was was the wrong decision, to be completely honest with you. So that happened. Uh, and then East, I mean, they definitely would have scored more points if they had the chance. So like I said, if they were to play out the rest of this game, I don't know if South wins it. Uh, but you could definitely expect a number of players on both sides to get suspended, to now play multiple games, and that will affect the seasons of both of these teams moving forward. And, you know, I it's, it's a shame, you know. Now, do I blame either side? Not really. It's a rivalry game. You know, you know what this is. And to be honest with you, if I'm not endorsing, you know, fighting or anything like that, but if you're not going to defend your teammates, then are you really teammates? Let's keep it 100 there. Uh, this showed me that they cared. And to be honest with you, watching some games here in Colorado, there are plenty of teams that obviously do not care. And so I'm not endorsing any of that fighting. I'm definitely not. You know, players are going to get suspended, and I think rightfully so. But, you know, for a fight like this to happen, I understand some of the reasons there. But with those actions come consequences. And so those players are going to get disciplined. I'm going to be honest, I definitely blame the adults more so in this than anything. I felt like the refs kind of shied away from taking control of this game, which was easily controllable in my opinion. I did not feel like this game was that far gone for them to go ahead and cancel it at halftime. There was one fight that, to be honest, they could just not control. Uh, and that's why it went on for more than the couple minutes it should have. It went on for about 10 or 15 minutes, to be honest with you. And that's on the refs and the adults for not getting control faster. Because there were definitely dead points where I thought the fight was over and then something else would flare up. That's on the adults. Separate your kids and get it done. You know, uh, coaching staff, refs, all that. I felt like they took way too long to get control of the situation. And then at the end, they didn't want to continue the game, which I felt like was definitely a game you could have continued, but you would have had to go ahead and kick out a couple players here. Now, if both coaches came to the decision that, hey, you know, who cares? Players are going to get kicked out anyways. This is not a game worth playing then I don't know if that's the greatest decision either because I still felt like this is one of those rivalry games that you have to play off. Now, these are my opinions. If you want to make an opinion of your own, here's how you could do that. I did happen to get film of the very last play of that game so you could see what happened. And then I do have film of the fight afterwards. It will be posted on our TikTok and on YouTube Shorts if you want to take a look at it. It's not long. It's a couple clips. Like I said, there are multiple times where I felt like the fight was over and then something else would flare up. And so you could go ahead and check that out there uh, at Playmakers Corner on our TikTok and our YouTube Shorts there and make a decision of your own. Like I said, I felt like this was a game that definitely still could have been played on, and I was shocked when they called it right before halftime. Not even at halftime or after halftime. It was right before halftime. There was a whole minute left here in the first half. They didn't even get to play the rest of the first half. And like I said, I did not feel like there was anything that happened in this game beforehand that really warranted canceling this game after one fight, or uh, I guess calling it after one fight, uh, especially in a rivalry game. You have to, I don't know, I, I feel like you have to go ahead and anticipate something like that happening, or even worse, it could have definitely been worse, so 
There you go. But regardless, let's get back to it. Pueblo East, they officially beat Pueblo South as of right now. That's September 25th, 2022. They beat them 23-0. to We'll see what Chassa decides to do. Like I said, I'm pretty sure you need three full quarters for it to be considered a full game. So we'll see what happens. But Pueblo East, they win the Cannon game for the first time since 2018. And in a dominating fashion. So there you go there and boy i'd like to say that does it for our friday action which is true but man what an impactful friday across some fronts simon easily going to the most exciting game in some kind of way and so we're gonna talk saturday action now so before i let gideon talk about prospect ridge versus manitou springs i'm gonna just go over some quick scores here and talk about delta as well so, um, after Gideon's segment, that is. But Denver North, they get back in the win column over Denver West, 14-6. Resurrection Christian winning another out-of-state game, this one on the road. They win 34-21 and remain undefeated to this point in the season in New 3A. Fountain Fort Carson wins the Battle of the Shield, big time, 51-0. to zil. Not really too much to talk about here, as you can imagine. In other Southern Colorado football action, Mesa Ridge gets a big win over Widefield, 48-3 on the heels of a solid game from Bryce Reel, 12 of 20, 243 yards, three touchdowns, and one interception, and then four rushing touchdowns from this balanced Mesa Ridge attack, Bryce, Carver, Trevin, and Isaiah all getting a piece here. George Washington beats 4A Aurora Central, 35-23, congratulations, obviously, to Honeycutt on his recent commitment to the University of Eastern Washington. So that is exciting and dandy. In other 3A action though, Northridge with a 56 to nothing win over 5A Rangeview. They do so on, you know, pretty solid game on the ground. Isaac Ness going for 132 yards and two scores on the ground but man this defense was just destroying this raiders offense honestly they forced two interceptions i believe that chris gets a pick six even um on well there's actually two pick sixes and a fumble recovery for a touchdown parker steckle with a fumble recovery for a touchdown and a pick six definitely a playmaker of the week type of vibe here as they just dispatch 5A range view. And in the past two weeks in notable games, uh, top 3A teams do beat 5A football teams. So, doesn't really matter what classification you're in. So, just a reminder for all of those people in our comments. And I think the last thing to talk about here before we talk about games that we were at is Grand Valley versus Manual. Manual with an upset over 2A Grand Valley, I would say, on the heels of a massive performance from Cartel Dickey. The quarterback for Manuel goes 9 of 16, four touchdowns to no interceptions. You also have Maynard here for Manuel with a big game. Two carries, 102 yards, long of 97, and a touchdown. Grand Valley just having no answers here for them and having a hard time finding the end zone. It looks like having a couple different guys try and pass the football here and just not finding quite the level of success that they need to beat Manuel. Carter Daly definitely in the conversation for playmaker of the week with that big time performance over to a grand valley for an upset now 
we're going to actually go over these games in order. Normally, it's the host talking about the game they went to and then somebody else. But Gideon was at the exact same stadium that we were at and, you know, did find some time to bounce back for the second game here. So I'm going to pass it to Gideon to talk about Prospect Ridge Academy versus Manitou Springs. Hello, everybody. This is Gideon again, and now I will cover the game between Manitou Springs and Prospect Ridge Academy. In terms of setting, this is one of the weirdest games that I have ever been to. It was Prospect Ridge's homecoming, but the neighborhood that the school is in does not allow lights or music. So they're forced to play in Westminster at the same stadium as the academy. Additionally, it was 11 a.m. on a Saturday, and I forgot to bring sunscreen or a hat. For that, mum, I am sorry. All of the players, coaches, managers, and spectators were extremely hot and tired, making water a very valuable commodity. Now, onto the game. Prospect Ridge, dressed in their black and yellows, started the game with possession, and Torrent Bennett got a kickoff for a short game. There was an incompletion, followed by what was technically a fumble but was recovered. There was a run for no gain on 2nd and 14, followed by a run by quarterback Chase Knopf that gained a couple of yards. The snap on the punt went well over the punter's head, which resulted in a turnover on downs on the Miners' 5-yard line. Tanner Jensen and Joshua Boyer shared to tackle for loss on a run, but they could not stop the running touchdown. However, on the attempted two-point conversion, Toby Barnett got a sack that only put the Miners down 6-0 with a little under four minutes having passed in the first. Brady McKenney received the kickoff for a good fancy gain, but a delay of game set the Miners back. The following sequence wasn't great for Prospect Ridge, as there was an incompletion, a run for loss, and a high snap leading to a sack, which forced a punt, which went about 40 yards. PRA had some good pass coverage, and Zachary Dika had a good tackle, and the Miners almost forced a turnover on downs. However, they could not stop the run, and despite some good tackling by Colin Brown, they could not stop the air, and eventually let in an outside rushing touchdown and conversion with 155 left in the first. Bennett almost had a full field return on the kickoff after the ball went between his legs, but he was brought down. On the play immediately after the slow, the Miners lost the ball on a fumble. On defense, Chase Schaefer and Barnett shared a tackle to end the first. Opening the second quarter, PRA failed to stop a long run, but they had a group tackle for loss that felt like the start of something. Barnett had a good breakup in the air, which ended up forcing a punt, which landed extremely close to the end zone. Two plays later, a run ended in a fumble, which was recovered in the end zone for a touchdown with 9.39 to play in the half. Bennett had another good return, but an allowed sack offset that. The Miners lured the Mustangs offside, and then a pass from Nope to Luis Diaz got a first down. This was repeated, but only brought up second and nine. Nope was forced to run with a lot of pressure and brought up no gain, and there was a turnover on downs on a long incompletion. Sebastian Diaz had a strong tackle, but then the Miners went offsides. Schaefer got a tackle, and then Michuan Puga got a horse collar penalty, and the Miners could not stop the run. After some arguing from the defense, another touchdown was allowed with 5.40 left in the half, along with a two-point conversion on sloppy coverage in the end zone. Luis Diaz got the return and took it about 20 yards, but an illegal procedure penalty put the Miners in trouble. Barrett got a good run for short, but that only made it second and 14. Sophomore tight end Travis Agbos 
then caught and ran for a first down, but a high snap and two straight incompletions led to a punt by Dylan Ritz. PRA did not play good defense and then allowed another long touchdown with 2.27 in the half. Barrett got a long kick return and nuffed through to Diaz for another first down. After another good throw to Agboss, PRA lured Manitou offsides for a first down. Barrett was able to get through some contact, and after a first down with 107 left, Nuff ran for 18 yards. Unfortunately, this was followed by a false start and another timeout with 43 seconds left. Coming out of the timeout, Knuff threw a pass to Agboss for a touchdown, and then Knuff threw a scramble pass to Schaefer for the two-point conversion with 37 seconds left. Nothing else really happened for the Miners heading into the half. Going into the third, a lot of the problems from before were still there. PRA was not stopping the run, and the defense was still bickering with each other. Sebastian Diaz had a good tackle, and Schaefer got a deflection, and they stopped the run on a goal line stand. But they failed to stop a pass with 7.43 left in the third. That got a touchdown. What would have been a kickoff touchdown return by Bennett was called back due to a blocking in the backfield penalty. After an incompletion, Agboss got a first down catch, and after another pass to Agboss for five, an allowed sack made Ritz punt again. Teddy Cundiff got an interception, but an allowed sack and a couple passes that almost got intercepted led to a turnover on downs. The Miners could not stop the run, but McKenney got a good tackle to end the third quarter. The fourth started with a catch-and-go by Luis Diaz, which was followed by a 30-yard moss by, again, Luis Diaz. Bennett then got a 28-yard rushing touchdown, and the conversion by Schaefer was good with 10.07 left in the game. The attempt at an onside kick failed, but Suvit Tawar recovered a fumble to give PRA back possession. A holding call brought the Miners back, and this led to an eventual turnover on downs. McKenney and Jensen then shared a tackle, and then PRA called a timeout with 5.42 left in the game. They got a good return on the punt, but it was once more called back for blocking in the backfield. Agboss caught another pass, and McKenney got a first down reception, followed by Luis Diaz catching another touchdown. Knopf then ran in for the two-point conversion with 4.11 left in the game. Vidura Kumar recovered a fumble, but multiple incompletions put the comeback in jeopardy. Following a first down by Agboss, Luis Diaz got another touchdown, and Knuff got another two-point conversion. PRA played good defense to force a turnover on downs, and then Manitou put their starting offense back in and closed out the game. The defensive player of the game for the Miners is Vidhura Kumar. I hope I pronounced that right. The 6'3 senior had himself a game, with a lot of good work in the trenches. His footwork was pretty good, and he was the best of all of the linemen in keeping guys away from the quarterback. There's only so much that one man can do, but Kumar did what he could. The offensive player of the game for Prospect Ridge is Luis Diaz. For the whole game, Luis Diaz made the defense guess. What is this guy going to do next? The senior harnessed his experience and was able to penetrate the defense more than a few times, along with catching some good receptions, including the 30-yard moss. He had a, a few touchdowns, and his speed was really hard to guard. You could hear the defense groan when the ball went his way, because odds were, he's like Maniac McGee. He's going to get his hands on him. During this game, we improved our communication with our coaches, says Diaz. 
That communication and trust is a part of what allowed us to stage that comeback. The playmaker of the game for the Miners is Chase Knopf. Despite the score, Knopf had a good game. The junior accounted for all of PRA's touchdowns, minus one running, ran for a couple of two-point conversions, and was a true leader for the team in their hardest moments. When down 43-8, it was his good eye that picked apart the Mustang defense to get downfield. After this run, the defense stopped bickering and played stronger and more united with each other. We found ourselves and our play calling worked, said Knopf, and he was right. Maybe this will be a turning point for PRA in their season. Now, on to Manitou Springs. Manitou came into this game feeling good, but with a couple of things to put together still. Even four weeks into the season, new pieces are coming in and coming back. Injuries have sidelined Liam Bowie and Thomas Spragans, who will add to the line, and injuries to wide receiver slash cornerback slash kicker slash punter Sam Fournier have left a little to be desired in special teams. Something that will help is soccer player Kate Johnson joining to kick, which should provide a pressure release valve once she is able to play. But this also gives freshman Jonas Hansen a chance to get varsity reps until that time comes. Now, on to the game. Hansen started the game with a 40-yard kickoff, and the Mustangs almost recovered a fumble, followed by Logan Moore getting a tackle on a run to force a punt from 4th and 5. However, the snap went over the punter's head, and the Mustangs started at the 5-yard line. After a 3rd and goal, Tyler Maloney brought it up to the 2-yard line for a 4th and goal, and then ran again for the touchdown. After a delay of game penalty, quarterback Nate Gensel had to scramble and the two-point conversion failed with 8.09 to go in the first. The Mustangs had good coverage and Braden Dowling got a tackle for loss, which, followed by a sack from Moore, led to a punt. Maloney got a six-yard run, but a couple of incompletions led to a fourth and five. After a timeout with 5.04 left, Maloney ran for a first down and again for 15 more yards. Moore ran for a first down, and Gensel nailed a pass to Evan Shear for 25 yards. Maloney got a touchdown, and his younger brother Preston Rhodes converted to put the Mustangs up 14-0 with under two minutes left in the first. Vaughn Miller got hurt on the kick return, but Dylan Gates got a pancake block. Kyan Bunker and Christian Gabrick Sanders then forced a fumble, which was recovered by Moore. Donovan Ornalis got a pancake on a first down run by Moore, which ended the first quarter. To open the second, Maloney had a 50-yard run that was called back, which was followed by a fumble. There was then an incompletion, followed by a run where Maloney snatched souls from ankles, but was still at a loss. This forced Gensel to punt on 4th and 13. Freshman Leighton Little and Ornalis shared a sack on the 2-yard line, which was followed by a forced fumble by Dowling, which was recovered in the end zone by Ornalis for a touchdown. Gensel then powered through contact to convert with 9.39 in the half. Once back on defense, Moore got another sack, but the team fell for an offsides feint. Despite this, Asher Levine, Gage Williams, and Little all had good pressure on the quarterback to force a turnover on downs. A short run by Maloney, facilitated by blocking from Dowling, led to a first down by Maloney. This first down showed something, though. Maloney is listed at 5'9 and 160. The guy who met him is 6 foot 3 and 195 and could not bring Maloney down. In fact, it took two more people on him for the refs to blow the whistle and he never stepped out. A holding call and an offsides the war set each other 
where Maloney had a 20-yard carry and then another touchdown. Maloney then received a pass from Gensel for the two-point conversion with 5.40 left in the half. A run on the ensuing drive was brought down by Levine and Dowling, and then Levine got a hard tackle to force another punt. Maloney received a pitch for 15 yards, and Ornalis powered through three guys. Maloney then received a 44-yard catch-and-go touchdown from Gensel with the clock at 2.27. The PAT was short, and the Mustangs were still up big. A tackle on the following drive by Levine saved it with a third and one, but the Mustangs fell for an offsides and allowed a passing touchdown with 37 seconds left on the clock. Rhodes got a 20-yard return to close out the half. Receiving the kickoff, Rhodes brought it 40 yards, and after a long incompletion, Maloney snatched more angles, this time for a 25-yard gain. Shearer caught a pass for third and three, after which Maloney brought it to the two-yard line. Gensel then threw a touchdown pass to Ornalis on fourth and two with 7.47 on the scoreboard. Hansen then hit the PAT, Manitou got bailed out by a blocking in the backfield call on the kickoff, Dowling got a tackle, and then shared a sack with Ornalis, which helped to force another punt. After a holding call on a first down play, Rhodes came in at quarterback, followed by an interception, which was then brought down by Bunker and Shear. Gabrick Sanders got his first sack, followed by Dowling getting one of his own. Hallen Hale got his fingers on a pass, which forced a turnover on downs. Moore got a six-yard run, and then another one for a first down. Rhodes carried the ball five yards, followed by a seven-yard run by Coy Prince to close out the third. Entering fourth, it was mostly JV in the game, but after Rhodes punted, which resulted in a touchback, it was entirely underclassmen and swingers for the Mustangs. Gabrick Sanders got a tackle, and Ben Perkins had a really solid defense, but a touchdown was allowed nonetheless, with 10.07 left in the game. The Mustangs fumbled, which was recovered by now-quarterback Gage Williams, but then a fumble was lost on the next play. The Mustangs got a too-many-men-on-the-field penalty while a guy was on his way out, less than three yards from the sideline, by the way, but good defense from Prince and Jaron Hall helped force a turnover on downs. Williams ran for a first down, but a false start along with very short runs meant that Williams had to punt, which, to his credit, made it over the minor receivers' heads. Hansen managed to tackle two guys at once, one of which had the ball, and Marley Christensen got a deflection, but a touchdown was allowed with 4.11 left in the game. This was then followed by a timeout with 3.41 in the game after a fumble. They went back to some of the starters, and Lucien Castilla got a touchdown-saving tackle. The sideline got a warning, and the Mustangs got the ball back, which led to first-team offense getting put back in. Logan Moore got another first down, and the Mustangs held on to win the game. The defensive playmaker of the game for the Mustangs was Braden Dowling. The 6'4", 215 junior lineman, a beast, with a lot of good interior defense, blocking, pancakes, and a couple of sacks. Dowling was having his way with the opposing lineman, and when he was taken out, the game was closed down for the Mustangs. More often than not, Dowling made the right play and got his man down on the ground. The offensive playmaker of the game for the Mustangs is Tyler Maloney. Maloney had himself a game, as he had a lot of catches and a lot of good runs for a lot of movement. Maloney is an all-around athlete, as he is one of the strongest guys on the team, able to muscle through guys twice his size, one of the fastest where he can run through almost any hole, and has some of the best hands, evidenced by his 44-yard touchdown reception and run. Maloney is an offensive weapon, somebody who is very hard to game plan for. We just have to keep doing what we've been doing, says Maloney. I trust it. 
playmaker of the game for the Mustangs was Logan Moore. Moore emerged this season as a bit of a surprise. The six-foot sophomore running back slash defensive end has bulked up and has made himself a force to be reckoned with. During this game, he ran through guys like it was nobody's business, and then got back on defense to force incompletions, get sacks, and tackles. If he did not play a down of offense, Moore would have been more than qualified for defensive playmaker of the game. But he is the full package. He is a pitcher, giving him an eye for detail evident during his running game, and he had a lot of medium-long runs, along with some touchdowns, extremely good defense, tackles, great air coverage, and a sack. We will keep preparing as much as we can, says Moore, and I will do my part. Also, Logan, I forgive you for hitting me in the face. Now for the summary of this game. To be completely honest with you, this game had no right to become as close as it ended up being. Entering the fourth quarter, Manitou was up 43-8. to That is not to take anything away from the Miners, as they did everything in their power in the fourth quarter to bring it back, and scoring like they did is impressive regardless of the context, but Varsity had it in the bag. Diaz and Knopf ended up carrying the Miners on their backs, both in terms of play and leadership. The defense just was not effective against the Mustangs, and when Manitou put their starting offense back with under two minutes left in the fourth, it became evident once more how wide the gap really was. Prospect Ridge Academy has some good players, namely Luis Diaz, Knopf, Agboss, Barnett, Bennett, and Kumar, but that is not enough to beat a team like Manitou. However, of the six players I just mentioned, four are returning, and PRA has 14 freshmen, 12 sophomores, and only 9 seniors, so the future looks bright if they develop this squad right. For Manitou, their brightest stars shined, with Gensel, Maloney, Dowling, and Moore showing out, with Ornalis and Levine doing really well as well. They head into homecoming against the Woodland Park Panthers next week with a lot of momentum to try to bring down the highly ranked team to open league play. The Miners, on the other hand, will face Bennett at home next Friday to try to pick up another win for this season, this time in their league. Best of luck to Fort Collins, Columbine, Manitou, and Prospect Ridge for the rest of their seasons, and I hope everyone listening to this has a great rest of your day. I'll see you all next week, and now, on to Cody. Thank you, Gideon, for filling us in on that. And now, going to be talking about a heavyweight matchup on the 2A level between our number three and four power-ranked teams, according to PMC. That's the Academy and Delta. The Academy, starting off with the ball, they have a tough return where they start at the 10. But Isaiah Elliott, you know, he keeps this drive alive. He tucks and runs for a first down. They get another run for five. Then they get a pass for a first down. But then Connor Workman, on this very first drive, begins the heavy workload on defense that he would have that day by blowing up a run, getting a tackle for loss. But then, you know, a couple of no gains later, they do get the defense to jump off sides, but that would not be enough. As on third and 12, Connor Workman does it again on the same drive, blowing up the run and forcing an academy punt. Delta, they have the ball with 10 minutes. But then a chop block penalty on their own 10 pushes them back quite a bit and makes it a very long first down. So they have a short run, an incomplete pass, and then a screen for 11, but then they have to punt. And so the punt is returned to the 48-yard line with seven and a half minutes left. They run a quarterback keeper for three yards, 
Then Isaiah Elliott hits Ben Merrillat for a quick hitch before there's an interception by Ryland Bynum that's returned all the way to the opposing 23 yard line. And so Delta with the ball on the 23 going in, they capitalize, they're running the ball very, very well here, eventually running for a first down. Then they have a keeper out of Wildcat that gets them to the one inch line before number five, Asai Correo, punches it in for six. And then they get the point after attempt to go up seven to zero with five minutes left in the first. The Academy, they have a couple of runs here. They come out and they're definitely afraid to pass the football here and they come out running and that's not going to really do anything here. And then there's, you know, a couple of exchanges here of the ball. Pretty uneventful here. Eventually, uh, Connor Workman does make a tackle in the backfield to end the first quarter. So on their own 39th, the Academy on their own 39th to start the second quarter, uh, they have third and one and they run for a first down. Then they have a run for four and on second and six, Clay Sandridge breaks up a pass. This was a great breakup by this Delta defender. And after another incompletion, the Academy has to punt. Delta, they start with the ball on their own 10 yard line with 10 minutes, but a penalty puts them at the five. And on the next run, there's a fumble recovered by the Academy. And so the Academy, they have the ball on the 16 and you know, with just over 10 minutes left in this first half, they get a short run uh, where Tucker Johnson makes a good tackle on Isaiah Elliott. But then Isaiah Elliott finds Sean Smith wide open for the score to tie it up 7-7 with 9.22 in the first half. Delta, they get the ball back, and their run game just isn't as smooth, and their deep shots don't connect, so they end up punting with 6.31 left in the first half. Now, the Academy doesn't really do too much with their possession either, and they end up having to punt. And so Delta, they have the ball with four minutes, 45 seconds left on their own 44. And they get a couple of runs for a first down, run for five, run for three. On third and two, they have another short run. And on fourth and one with 155 left in the half, they do a QB keeper for by Landon Clay for the first down. And then Clay has another run of eight. And Delta with 51.1 seconds left in the half. Uh, you know, they take a timeout here. Clay throws into the dirt. They have a third and two, short gain, fourth and one. They run another quarterback keeper for a first down. They take another timeout with 20.7 seconds left. And then there's a big scuffle here of sorts. And out of the midst of this, the Academy gets a player ejected. And there's two penalties on the Academy, despite the appearance that on this pass, a Delta player does have a late block and the Academy retaliates and ends up with a player getting ejected, a couple of personal fouls. Delta has the ball on the three yard line with 12.7 seconds left, punching it in to go up 14-7 right before half. So, and then there's another like unsportsmanlike conduct penalty where Delta is kicking from the 40 yard line, no return, nothing happens. So right before half, a little bit of a crazy tornado here hits this football game. Not really sure what went down no, none of the three of all PMC that was there, uh, Simon Giddy and I could really tell what happened. We thought that maybe it was a little bit of an overreaction. The refs were calling this game really tight, by the way. Like, there is a lot of flags in this game, and I'm not sure if there was a flag on every single play that they were throwing it on. But I mean, I'd rather have it called too tight than called too loose. And uh, Delta, 
they go into the half with a 14 to seven lead and they start with the ball. So Delta here feeling pretty good about their chances of going up two scores, but the Academy had another idea here as to start the half. Aiden Petrick intercepts Delta here and sets up the Academy on the 28 yard line going in with 1141 left here. So, you know, Connor Workman and Alex Ward, they blow up this first run from the Academy. Then Isaiah Elliott keeps, weaves, and spins for a few, setting up third and five. They have a rush for a first down, and a penalty on Delta sets up first and nine going in on the goal line. Uh, Connor Workman here, well, first off, the Delta defense gets a stop for none, and then Connor Workman holds on to Isaiah Elliott for the sack here. Connor Workman having an insane game here. But then on the next play, Isaiah Elliott rolls out and drops an absolute dot to Sean Smith past one defender, like over one defender with just enough touch, just enough accuracy to be in front of or to the side of the other defender. Just an elite level throw to tie the game up at 14 with 851 in the third. So Delta with the ball and with the game tied now, they they go to work here. Clay, he finds Connor Workman for a first down. Uh, Connor does get drilled on this play, but the Delta O-line, they pave great running lanes for a first down. But then Marcus Arsberger of the Academy gets to the quarterback and on third and 15, Delta, they throw a screen. The Academy sees right through it and forces a punt. Now the Academy with the ball on their own 30 with 543 left in the third, this is their first chance to take the lead all game. And, you know, they get a run before a great breakup by Landon Clay forces an incomplete pass. This was at bare minimum a, a, a first down saving deflection, if not potentially a touchdown saving deflection by Clay here on the defensive end. On third and eight, uh, Connor Workman, he gets the initial hands on Isaiah Elliott and Isaiah is sacked and the academy is forced to punt. Now, Connor Workman, he returns the punt to the 50 yard line and then on the next run, Isai Correo again, he turns on the burners and rips off a long gain, getting all the way inside the five-yard line before getting pushed out of bounds. It was a great touchdown-saving tackle by number 34 on the academy. However, this would not be enough as Landon Clay does eventually score on a quarterback keeper to go up 21-14 to with 337 left in the third quarter. This was... At this point, the best game that probably any of us had seen all weekend. Um, just because, I mean, listen to all the recaps of the other games. But it was a kind of rough weekend for PMC here. So it was nice to see a classic game here. The Academy, they get the ball here. Isaiah Elliott runs for a first down. Before on the next play, Delta stuffs the run. And then number 56, Stoltzfus, gets a knockdown on Isaiah Elliott to force an incomplete pass. But then Elliott... He, on the next play, on third down, he escapes the pocket and he finds number 44, but Landon Clay makes a big time tackle just short of the first down. So it's the Delta ball. Casillo, he drops the hammer into somebody and picks up a few yards. And so heading into the fourth quarter, it is 21 to 14. Both these teams are playing very solid defense. They're going back and forth. This is an absolute battle in the trenches. Isaiah Elliott is playing a great game. Landon Clay, who is the backup quarterback for Delta, might I add, is having a phenomenal game outside of that interception. And so both quarterbacks with an interception apiece, but both willing their teams in this game, whether it's through the ground or through the air. But 
Continuing on, Delta, they have the ball on the 31, and on fourth and inches, they run a quarterback sneak for a first, and then Asai Carrillo breaks a tackle and wins the foot race this time down the left sideline to go up 28 to 14 with 11 minutes and six seconds left in the fourth. And so the Academy, this is a very important drive for them. They have got to convert. So they get a quick run. There's a deep pass and it's just past the receiver here, but then they run a screen for a first down. But uh, number five Delta on that play blows up two blockers, which was pretty insane. But the screen still goes, they get a first. There's a quick pass to Ben Merillat for four. They run a halfback gut for three. And on third and three, there is a guy that's open, but the Delta Blitz forces a tackle at the line of scrimmage or a sack. I mean, Delta brings like six on this. Great play calling by both of these defenses. By the way, there is a variety of looks being shown. Just a great chess match between both these coaching staffs and great, you know, execution battle between the players, especially in the trenches. But, you know, on fourth and three, Academy takes a timeout and Elliott finds number 88, Derek Rail on a perfect out pass for a first. The next play is an incomplete, but then Derek Rael picks up eight yards on a hitch, and on third and two, Isaiah Elliott gets a keeper for a first down. Number 28 for Delta jumps off sides, and then there's a shot to the end zone to Smith, Sean Smith here, that I think probably should have drawn a pass interference flag as the defender did swipe his hands at the point of the catch. There is no flag here, and on second and five, they throw an incomplete pass, and then on third and five, there is a flag for holding that puts them all the way back third and 20. Following a dropped pass, they try and run a hook and ladder on fourth and 20. This does not work. And so Delta has the ball on the 46 with 644 left in the fourth quarter. There's a holding penalty and an incomplete pass. And on third and 15, Clay runs a keeper for 10 yards. And then on fourth and six, Delta punts and sets up the academy on the three yard line. Great special teams in this game by both squads as well. I mean, Really, it cannot be understated just how well-balanced this game was and how classic of a football game we got to witness on this fine Saturday afternoon. Now, the Academy, on their own three with 5'10", they unfortunately fall start, pushing them deeper in their own zone. There's a quick throw to pick up a few yards. Ben Merillette gets a gain of nine. And then 61 and Connor Workman, uh, 61 on Delta, that is, both combined for a sack here to just really bury this team deep in their own zone once again. And so, you know, third and 11, they're at the one, they get stopped at the one, and then a false start pushes them back at like the half yard line. The punt gets off, but, uh, you know, number 42 for the academy makes a great tackle. But uh, then there's a flag and Delta starts the ball at the 19 yard line uh this flag was called for like unnecessary roughness i just think it was a good tackle personally but like i said the refs were calling this game pretty tight and so delta they have the ball on the 19 going in with three minutes and 11 seconds it's honestly amazing that the academy defense makes great stops forcing delta to take a field goal 31 to 14 but by the time this drive ends there's only a minute 18 left the academy they you know have a couple of nice throws, but then the game ends on a sack on the last play. And Delta wins against the Academy 31-14. to Like I said, this game is way closer than the box score would lead you on to believe. And the box score, I mean, look, Isaiah Elliott on the day only has 63 rushing yards. But that does not talk about how many first downs I just talked about them having. 
And I mean, the rest of the running backs just struggled to get going. Donahue here with only 16 yards on the day. Fabian with only four yards on the day. I mean, this Delta team only averaged two and a half yards per carry. So huge shout out to this Delta defense that was just swarming to the ball very, very well. But I mean, Connor Workman, I mean, Clay Sandridge, he has a 13 tackle kind of game. And like I said, Landon Clay has some nice pass breakups that really matter. Ryland Bynum here on this defense with that one interception and returning it into the red zone to set up deltas for score. Then like the forced fumble by Tucker Johnson that was recovered by Clay Sandridge. There were a lot of guys that had a really solid game here, but I don't think none really stood out the way that Connor Workman did. 17 tackles, four tackles for loss, three sacks, a few hurries as well. He was just very physical and a force for this Delta team that gets a very big time win over a very good Academy team. Look, I think that if these teams face again, it might be a little bit different here. Even with Ty Reed back in the fold, I think Isaiah Elliott is a very good quarterback. I think that there are some solid receivers here. I mean, look, Sean Smith, he was open a lot. He caught both of these scores. Ben Merlet, he has pretty sure hands here. Derek Ryle, he didn't get involved until later in the game, but I mean, he was a reception machine getting seven total receptions for 83 yards. And I mean, Sean Smith could have potentially had a third touchdown. So little mistakes, got to cut back on the fumbles here, not turn the ball over. And then, I mean, the defense for as long as they were on the field really did a good job. I mean, the Academy loses this game when they end up having to punt or when they end up turning over on downs. And I mean, the Academy defense forces Delta to punt with still six minutes or five minutes left in the game but i mean starting on your own three yard line and needing two scores is just not an ideal setup you're backed up and then they have to punt here to give themselves a chance the delta defense does only allow three points but i mean it's too little too late at that point i'd say well definitely playmaker of the game is connor workman no shot that it's anybody else but isaiah elliott seriously impressed us sean smith put on quite a show as well so these guys, you know, are a very respectable cast and crew. And this is a game that I would not be surprised or mad to see a second time. But that is the last of the Saturday games and our game recaps. After the break, we are going to come back and talk Playmakers of the Week. And following that, we got everyone's favorite. And by everyone's favorite, I mean everyone's not favorite uh, power rankings coming up. All right, y'all, it is time for Playmakers of the Week. As you know, we look through all of the performances, 1A through 5A, and then we come to a conclusion here. So first, I'm going to talk about the candidates themselves. In 1A, we do have Malachi Deck here. He had seven tackles, two for loss in a 24-12 win North Fork over Cedar Ridge. Jackson Martinez here for Monte Vista collecting 12 tackles, three for loss in a 50 to 22 win over Peyton. This is probably not too much of a surprise to anyone to hear Gabe Schubarth's name on this list. He's definitely in the running for offensive playmaker of the year, just in general for end of the year awards. But in the game against another top 10 opponent in Buena Vista, he has 18 carries for 116 yards and three touchdowns in a 50 to 13 win. But the last guy here, and my personal pick for Playmaker of the Week has got to go to Cartel Dickey 
of manual look in this game against Grand Valley, who is a 2A team now, by the way. So I would consider this an upset, especially considering the start that Manuel has had to the season and the start that Grand Valley has had. Cartel goes nine of 16 for 284 yards and four passing touchdowns in a 46 to 20 upset win over Grand Valley. So one A playmaker of the week is gonna be Cartel Dickey out of Manuel High School on the 1A level since they did move down from 2A to 1A this past season. Speaking of 2A, on the 2A level, couple of candidates here that I've talked about. Connor Workman is one of our candidates. Like I said, 17 tackles, four tackles for loss, three sacks, and then 36 scrimmage yards in 31 to 14 win over number four, the Academy. Another candidate here is Logan Gross, eight of 18, 145 yards, two passing touchdowns, along with seven carries for 45 yards and a tutty four rifle and an upset win over Brush. I would call that an upset win as well. Three total touchdowns and then 190 yards. Very solid performance here. Now, in not an upset here, but an expected win, TCA dominates Sand Creek, but it's worth mentioning that Ethan Aragundi, the running back here, for the Titans does get 19 carries for 135 yards and three touchdowns in TCA's big 45 to zero win over the Sand Creek Scorpions. Now the last playmaker of the week candidate I have here is Alex Larson, who in Berthet's close win over Lamar had 27 carries for 137 yards and his rushing touchdown was the go ahead touchdown here for Berthet. But for my 2A player of the week, I'm going to go back to the top here and choose Connor Workman. Look, it's very rare to recognize a player take over a game on the defensive side of the ball the way that Connor Workman did in this game. He was just everywhere all at once and just was great in the pass rush. He was great in the run game. He was flying around the field. He would make tackles across the field. But I mean, in the backfield is where he lived and he was definitely living inside of the academy's offensive line's mind rent free he was just so dominant off the edge he'd come through the middle i mean just his combination of size speed and athleticism is going to be very scary and a performance like that definitely has me thinking about him for like a 2a depoy kind of conversation but for now he'll have to settle for playmaker of the week here in week five on the 2a level on the 3A level, we have a couple of guys here. You know, uh, Jack Shearholds, he's been having a very solid season, but he has an especially special game here in a win over Wheat Ridge. This was a dominant win, 55-14. And in this game, he goes 22 of 29 for 261 yards and three passing touchdowns. And then on the ground, he tacks on another 133 yards. This guy almost has 400 scrimmage yards, and he has another two scores. Amari Brown here for Pueblo Central. They do face Pueblo County. It's not, you know, as big of a rivalry as Pueblo Centennial per se, but he still has an incredible game, getting 26 carries for 301 yards and three touchdowns in their 44 to 28 dub. Now, representing defense are these next two candidates here. I mentioned this one guy for Harrison earlier, Jordan Davis Voss. For Harrison in their win over Canyon City gets 10 tackles. Half of those tackles 
R for loss, and he also has two sacks in that win. Last but not least here, the Northfield Nighthawks, as mentioned earlier, they win 49-7 here. While Christian Love's four-touchdown performance was solid and Amarian Richardson had another Amarian Richardson-level game, I'm going to give a Playmaker of the Week candidacy to Cardell Jones or Cardell Collins Jr. Not Cardell Jones, that's an Ohio State alum. But uh, Cardell Collins Jr. here gets two interceptions and six tackles in the Nighthawks' 49-7 win over 4A Adams City, might I add. But I'm going to go ahead and give Playmaker of the Week here to Jack Sherholtz. He's been having an incredible season. He's an incredible player who, you know, has been doing his thing at Summit for the past couple of years now. And I mean, five touchdowns and almost 400 yards and a big win over Wheat Ridge. I'm going to go ahead and give it to him. Now, the hardest Playmaker of the Week category here is in 4A because there's just so many insane performances here. I talked about him earlier. Sam Beers here ran for six touchdowns and 381 yards on 31 carries. And he also threw a touchdown, totaling seven of the nine touchdowns that Air Academy scores against Coronado here. Numbers-wise, those are definitely video game numbers. And speaking of video game numbers, Braden Dorman, the four-star quarterback out of Vista Ridge here, also had himself some video game numbers against the other Vista Vista Peak prep here, going 25 of 33 for 390 yards and four passing touchdowns, and then also adding in a rushing touchdown as well, playing basically a perfect game. But the other two players in this category also had perfect games, you know, uh, Nathaniel Gator Robinson for Palmer Ridge gets 30 carries for 215 yards and three touchdowns in Palmer Ridge's 48 to 34 win over number two, Ponderosa. Anytime I'm referencing these numbers, by the way, I'm talking about the PMC rankings. So stay tuned for those to see how those were updated. And last but not least here, as a receiver, I had to shout out this guy, Logan Miller, 10 receptions, 290 yards, four touchdowns, and an interception in a 33 to 21 skyline win over Longmont. And oh, this is easily the toughest play. This is probably one of the toughest playmakers of the week I've ever had to do. But I'm going to go in the middle here between story and numbers. And I'm going to give the edge here to Logan Miller of Skyline. Look, a receiver almost having 300 yards is ridiculous. Shout out to his quarterback, obviously, Caden Box, who had like basically a flawless game himself. But Logan Miller here, 10 receptions, averaging 29 yards per reception and receiving four touchdowns is just ridiculous for a wide receiver to do. He's a special player. All these guys are special players who should be on the next level. Look, I know Braden Dorman definitely is, but all these guys, I believe, are Division One athletes and should be treated that way. Look, Sam Beers, seven touchdowns. That's really special. Braden Dorman's five touchdowns, very special. And Gator Robinson probably having the most important performance of all of these teams against the most quality opponent. But I'm going to give the edge here to Logan Miller in a rivalry game in the battle for Longmont, helping Skyline topple Longmont following last year's loss and just having an absurd game for a wide receiver. That's that wide receiver bias coming into play a little bit here, but shout out Logan Miller, the 4A Playmaker of the Week. On the 5A level, we got a couple of quarterbacks in the mix here 
in Austin Modrzewski going 17 to 21, 313 yards and four touchdowns in a 42 to zero win against University in Orlando. But in addition to that, uh, Colton Pollock, who I watched on Friday night, while his passing stats of five of 18 for 64 yards and a one to two ratio aren't great. His ground game, 22 carries for 172 yards and three touchdowns, was massive in a huge win over another top 25 opponent. And then Colin Lerma with a very impressive performance and, you know, just helping put legacy on the map here. He goes 8 of 14 for 111 yards and a passing score, puts up a QBR of 106.5, but then on the ground also getting it done very efficiently, going 23 for 156 yards and three touchdowns in their 38 to 24 win over Legend High School. However, for the second time this year, the Playmaker of the Week is going to be Defensive Playmaker of the Year candidate Isaac Angle, who had an interception return for 40 yards, a pass deflection, a forced fumble and recovery, scoop and score, and 21 tackles. These are these aren't even video game numbers. They're so unrealistic. The way that he dominates on the defensive side of the ball, the way that he's a do-it-all kind of guy. He's just an incredible, incredible talent. And so for the second time this year, in a 17 to 8 win, you know, where the defense plays huge. Gotta give Playmaker of the Week to Isaac Angle here, getting, you know, two turnovers on his own, breaking up passes, and then making tackles all over the field to shut down this Smoky Hill defense. Shout out to the rest of that unit there at Highlands Ranch, but nonetheless, a very impressive, very impressive performance by Isaac Angle. So, to recap, the Playmakers of the Week are in 5A, Isaac Angle of Highlands Ranch High School in a 17-8 win over Smoky Hill. Logan Miller of Skyline High School in a win over Longmont, 33-21. Jack Shearholtz of Summit High School in a 55-14 win over Wheat Ridge. In 2A, Connor Workman's put in that work for a 31-14 win over the Academy. And the number, and then the Playmaker of the Week of 1A, I should say, is Cartel Dickey, 9 of 16, 284 yards, four touchdowns, and a 46 to 20 upset win over Grand Valley. And that has been your Playmakers of the Week. And we got power rankings coming up. So for power rankings, if you don't recall, the way that this works is that Simon and I both list our power rankings 1 through 10, and the points go, if you're first, you get 10 points, second, 9 points, so on and so forth. And then it's a composite score to figure out are PMC power rankings. And so at number one in 1A, it's Lyman. Look, a dominant, Simon says, quote, a dominant win over Buena Vista reaffirms why they should be number one in 1A and are the favorites to go win state. They faced a number of quality opponents these last couple weeks and they left no doubt, end quote. And for me, I said, what a statement and dominant win over Buena Vista. This was on the road and they just have so many playmakers and the execution is still their bread and butter. Trade Marks is probably the best player in 1A on the defensive side of the ball. And then Shoebarth and Rockwell are just clicking and Lyman remains at number one. This doesn't even mention all their other playmakers like Logan Botcher, who continues to make plays. You have Bandy, who continues to make plays on both sides of the ball. Like This team is just loaded and very, very well coached. At number two, uh, we're going to keep Ray here. They have a bye week, so we're not going to move him up or down. Number three, we have Strasburg. 
Simon put, quote, a bounce back blowout win over Bennett is a huge W for them. I'll keep them behind Ray for now, but they're definitely right there with them. And I put, you know, that a big win over down the highway Bennett uh, that's in 2A these days, you know, goes a little bit away and uh, keeps Strasburg here at three. For four, we have Wiggins. They had a bye week, so no need to move them here. But they have a huge game against Yuma coming up. More on them later. At number five, Monta Vista. You know, they destroyed Peyton. Peyton, this is a team that uh, has made the playoffs in the past, but uh, Vista takes care of business in their, you know, 18-point win. Yuma here at number six. Simon puts, quote, escaped with a tough win, but, you know, for now, I'm going to be moving them up. And I said that these dudes will move up and have a massive homecoming game to open league against number four Wiggins. I'm going to try and make that game, but we will see. I said that this whole season they've been proving themselves and their biggest opportunity to continue to do so will be this Friday. Now, tied at number seven, we have Buena Vista and Centauri. Simon put, quote, the Gunnison loss was bad enough, but losing to Lyman in this way is tough, especially for a team that I know has the talent to be a legit contender in state. The coaching staff needs to figure it out and get the most out of the athletes they have, end quote. And Buena Vista, I actually had them at number eight following this loss. I thought it was embarrassing. I said that the, the platooning may have run its course for the Demons. Inexperienced and, you know, these young players committing penalties constantly shoots them in the foot. Their league is licking their chops as they have North Fork and Meeker fast approaching who think Buena Vista is vulnerable and beatable and they just might be if kids aren't, you know, playing both ways, who are good starters, or if the youth continues to make mistakes. Tied at seven in our overall rankings is Centauri. Simon, you know, uh, no words on them. I had them at seven in my personal rankings because I said a solid win over 2A Bayfield um, that has some athletes. Lance Centauri here at seven. Uh, they're very well coached and are still in a tier above most teams in Colorado, but their play against contenders has not convinced me quite enough. Number nine, uh, we keep Meeker here. Simon actually ranks Gunnison here at number 10 and says uh, they move up here as they continue to win games. I have Colorado Springs Christian, so that makes our number 10 spot Gunnison and Colorado Springs Christian. So on 1A, just as a quick reminder, that goes Lyman, Ray, Strasburg, Wiggins, Monte Vista, Yuma. Tied for seven is Buena Vista and Centauri. Meeker at nine, and then tied for 10 is Colorado Springs Christian. Now for 2A, not going to be a whole lot of movement here. Look, uh, number one, two, and three, nothing changes here. TCA and Eaton, both not giving us any reason to move them down. And then Delta here, Simon says, quote, even without Ty Reed, they are rolling with a dominant defense holding it down for them. Offensively, this team will be really dangerous once he comes back, end quote. I said, the Panthers definitely defend their spot here, definitively, uh, here at three, following a fantastic defensive performance where the edge rushers and linebackers get a great job filling lanes and creating pressure on the academy all day. And to think that they aren't even at full strength on offense is scary. Go ahead and listen to that recap for Delta versus the academy to hear more reasoning on why they are here at number three. In our PMC rankings, we have Florence here at number four. Their blowout faith over faith blowout win over Faith Christian lands them and moves them up a spot along with a loss in front of them. At number five, we have La Hunta. I personally have La Hunta at six because they didn't play anyone this week. But, uh, you know, in our overall rankings, we moved the academy down a little bit. 
at number six, Simon says, quote, honestly, the score did not reflect how well they played. Their quarterback is very impressive and the defense made some big plays throughout the game. Playing a quality team in Delta will be good for them in the long run, end quote. I put, you know, going to drop the Academy. I only dropped them to number five. I had them at number four in my personal rankings. I said that they lose this game uh, when they overcommit to the on the run uh, very early in the game off of what was really just a great play by the Delta defense on an interception. But the Wildcat defense provided some opportunities. And, uh, you know, this team will be tougher in the trenches heading down the stretch. So PMC rankings up to this point. TCA, Eaton, Delta moving up. Florence, number, number four. Little Hunter here at five, the Academy at six. At number seven through 10, nothing changes here from last week. Basalt, Moffat County, Elizabeth, Fort Lupton, all of them had bye weeks. Nothing to really add on here. Uh, Simon puts for Woodland Park, quote, they get a big W over a good 1A Colorado Springs Christian team, and they pull another big matchup for Manitou that could decide who makes the top 10 here next week. Now, for 3A power rankings, number one, Roosevelt. Uh, I put after a close first quarter, Roosevelt pulled away with the same set of guys making plays in Duche, Ramirez, Peterson, and Hartson, all having a hand in a pair of touchdowns in a win over Holy Family. And then in our PMC power rankings, we have a tie for second place here, Green Mountain. Uh, they didn't play anyone, and I still personally have Green Mountain ranked at three, but uh, Simon, you know, putting some respect on they name here. Um, and, you know, keeping them at two. But to move up for here, I've been high on the Grizz all season and I've had them at number two. And they get a huge win over Rangeview. And Simon has something to say of that, saying, quote, a 56-0 whooping of 5A Rangeview and on late notice at that is extremely impressive. They will get a chance to punch their way up to Roosevelt here in a couple weeks. But for now, this Northridge team continues to impress. And Simon says reclaim the third spot for him and his personal rankings. Ends in a tie at two here because Northridge at three for him, Northridge at two for me. Add it up, it shakes down to that. Now, there is a two-way tie at fourth place here between Simon and I, between Durango and Lutheran. Simon has, for Lutheran says, quote, for them to keep it a close game with a tough Montrose team that usually does a good job controlling the pace of the game is very impressive, especially considering they won't face a team like Montrose anytime soon. They only move one down, down one spot for me. And for me, they also moved down one spot. We just had a difference. I have Lutheran here at five. I said, I'm not going to punish the Lions for losing to a top 10 4A team. Uh, depth is the difference here, in my opinion, since out the gate, the Lions led at the end of the first quarter. But a big second quarter by Montrose gives them a lead prior to halftime that, you know, Lutheran just doesn't quite close. And so, you know, you take away these two giveaways and this game is even closer than it looks already. And they'll be fine. So I'm not worried about them. But I did reward Durango for their win since they did avenge last year's playoff loss in convincing fashion. Uh, and, you know, like I said, going through the Friday scores, they were only up 21 to 14 at half. But then they scored 21 unanswered points in the second half. They shut out this need offense and, you know, I think have some of the best trench play in 3A that a lot of other teams should take note of. Simon here with our tie for Durango and Lutheran here at first, at fourth, my bad, uh, says, quote, a dominant win over Meade is extremely impressive. The only reason I don't move them up higher is because these other teams just happen to dominate 5A or play very good 4A teams. Durango is just as much a contender as the other four teams ranked in front of them, to be honest. I agree, well, end quote, I agree wholeheartedly that 
it, there's not a lot of gaps between these top few teams here, honestly. And uh, there's arguably not a huge gap between them and this next team here at number six, which is Evergreen. Look, Evergreen played our number two team, Northridge, very close earlier in the season, and they take care of business against Severance that was once a top 10 team in 3A. Just obliterate. I think they win like 41 to 8 or something like that. And Zimmerer has a fantastic game. In a day where Tommy Poholski kind of struggled, Zimmerer stepped up big time and they still get an absolutely huge dub here to keep their spot at number six. Simon says, quote, they really put it to a Severance team that honestly has a great defense. And that is a very good omen. Uh, things stay the same for now, though, end quote. And uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd call this a statement win over Severance. Um, in in place of you know a former top 10 team and they still have a big prove it situation against green mountain here in a couple weeks but i'm feeling pretty good about that game following their performance against severance now at seven here simon and i see eye to eye uh res christian simon says they were quote they were the only colorado team to go to texas this year and they went to katy texas and got a w as somebody who grew up in dallas going to katy Texas and getting a win is never an easy thing to do for any football team. This team is heating up just like the rest of 3A here, end quote. And, you know, I said brand new to 3A and undefeated. The Cougars have won three consecutive games against out-of-state teams in mostly convincing fashion. Uh, the league that they're in is tough, but they have a bye and a winnable game against Sand Creek before that. And honestly, depending on how they do against the likes of Roosevelt, this is a team that could potentially also be in that mix. So you're looking at one through seven of contenders here on the 3A level. Here at number eight, we got Northfield. Uh, Simon says, quote, took care of business against Adam City as expected, end quote. And I said, bumping Northfield ahead, uh, another one spot, following a throttling of Adam City where their defense continues to shut down opposing offenses and athletes take turns making plays on offense. Uh, Christian Love can be more efficient accuracy-wise, but a four-to-one ratio and a blowout works as well. At number nine, I have Pueblo East, and so do we here at PMC. I said that it was a nice bounce-back win to win the cannon before halftime. Uh, East, uh, as noted by Simon, was dominating in all facets of the game prior to it being called a half, but a big-time rivalry win bumps East up from 10. Uh, Simon, he has the full game recap, but here in the power rankings, he says, quote, they won the cannon game, and honestly, if it wasn't for the game being called at halftime, they probably would have put 50 on South if they could, end quote. So, you know, this was a heated game, passionate game. Go ahead and listen to Simon. It was probably the craziest game this week, and that's enough to put them at nine. And then here at 10, uh, Simon says, quote, a big win against a talented Aurora Central 4A squad has to put them here in the top 10, as they are definitely a sleeper team with a lot of speed, end quote. And I said, I'm going to give the edge to George Washington over Summit for now uh, due to their toppling of squads that are above them in, cons in classifications constantly and for their dominance. Uh, shout out to Huntingcutt for his commitment to Eastern Washington as well. And this George Washington squad is living up to expectations and this upcoming week face another squad above them in classifications. So our PMC rankings for 3A goes Roosevelt 1, tied at 2 is Green Mountain and Northridge, Tied for four is Lutheran and Durango. So that takes care of the top five teams. And then six through 10 was pretty easy for Simon and I. Evergreen, Resurrection Christian, Northfield, Pueblo East, and George Washington to round out our top 10 for 3A. Now, 4A was a wacky one. So I'm actually going to start at the bottom of this list. We have two teams tied for ninth here 
in Bear Creek and Vista Ridge here. Look, I had Bear Creek at 10. Simon must have had them at nine. And then I have Vista Ridge at nine. Simon must have them at 10. So it bounces out here. Simon says, with Dakota Ridge dropping out, I'm very, or yeah, with Dakota Ridge dropping out, I'm very comfortable moving Vista Ridge back into the top 10 after a big time win. They shouldn't lose any more games leading into the Palmer Ridge game. And then for Bear Creek, Simon says, a close loss to Fruit of Monument is not the worst thing in the world. They deserve to be in the 10. And so for now, they stay here. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, I had Bear Creek at 10 last week. I'm going to keep them here at 10 since they only lost to Fruita by four. And I want to say it was on the road too. So to go to Fruita, only lose by four. And, you know, their quarterback here is had a, having an incredible season, honestly, to keep Bear Creek relevant and maintaining their success. Speaking of quarterbacks, that's why I moved Vista Ridge here to nine. Brennan Dorman had a great performance, as did B.B. Hills and Keyshawn Dooley. They basically do every week, but this time it was enough for a massive win over Vista Peak Prep. Now here at eight, Simon and I both agree Montrose. Simon says, quote, they continue their reign of terror over 3A teams, beating a good Lutheran team by two scores. They will stay here for now, end quote. Look, Montrose, I think that they've had a pretty solid schedule. They do get a couple of 3A teams out of the way here. You got to take who you can get when you're all the way out there and uh, you don't get exactly the, you know, easiest schedule building process with all the travel and getting people to travel out to you but they are a top 10 team for their success and you gotta look at the win over Erie here as a definitive point to keep them here at eight now tied at six is Loveland and Denver South Simon says quote they get another win but unfortunately strength of schedule is definitely playing a role in why I'm hesitant on moving them up they get Erie this week but we will see Look, I've been high, me personally, end quote, uh, I've been high on Loveland since the beginning of the season. I think that they have a championship caliber defense. Simon is right that, you know, they are riding a couple of cupcake wins, but I mean, they've only lost one game all season, and that was to a solid 5A team in Fossil Ridge that, you know, has an argument to be top 10. So I, that's why I don't mind putting them at six for me personally. Simon. And I have Denver South. The PMC rankings have Denver South at six. I have them at seven. I don't really mind this ranking all that much being tied. Simon says, quote, they win as they should uh, this last week. But more importantly, they pull Ponderosa this next Thursday and what should be a good one uh, that myself will be at this next week. Quote, end quote. I will be at that game as well with Simon. We will be watching Pondo versus uh, Denver South. And, you know, Denver South could have a really big chance on moving up in that game. At number five, we have Pueblo West here. Simon says, quote, they get back on track with a win over 5A Far Northeast by winning by two scores. After an embarrassing loss to Fountain Fort Carson, they need to continue uh, to keep the winning going as they will get a chance against number one Palmer Ridge here soon, end quote. Yeah, look, uh, Far Northeast, this is a team that, you know, 4A teams have been having success against. I think that they succeed as much as they need to against this squad and, you know, ultimately keep their spot here at five. This is where things get messy. This is where things get messy here. Look, at two, three, and four, I have Broomfield, Ponderosa, and Fruit of Monument. At two, three, four, Simon has Fruit of Monument, Ponderosa, Broomfield. If you average that out with the same teams being in the same places and flip-flopped, you end up with a three-way tie for second place here for Fruita, Broomfield, and Ponderosa. It's kind of hilarious <laughs> that that we ended up flipping it. And when Simon realized this, he texted me immediately like, bro, we have three teams in second. But, uh, you know, 
I'm gonna go ahead and just go through this real quick here. Simon and I agree eye to eye that they're only gonna move down one spot. Losing a close game to the number one team is okay um, and not the end of the world here. So that's why they we agree that they're three here. Now, I had Broomfield ahead of Fruita Monument originally following that win over Erie that they had. I have a lot of faith and confidence in their defense. And then Cola Crew is definitely one of the best players in Colorado football right now. And Simon on Broomfield says, quote, they continue their undefeated record here at 5-0, but will pull a Dakota Ridge squad this next week that has just dropped out of the top 10, but is desperate for a win and won't go down so easily, end quote. So I think Simon is looking for a test here from Dakota Ridge uh, to potentially move Broomfield up. But I mean, Fruita Monument is, you know, a solid program here that's only lost to Grandview this far in the season, which is not a bad loss to have. Uh, Simon says, quote, they escape with a close win over a tough Bear Creek squad here in the top 10, and for that, I'll move them up. A win is a win, especially against a good team. So Fruita Monument, you know, getting that benefit from Simon here for beating another top 10 team. This was a quality win. Fruita continues to run the ball very effectively. They have a couple of top 10 wins, you know. I mean, they beat Montrose, who's at number eight. They beat Bear Creek here, who's at number nine. And, uh, you know, them and Broomfield will get to play each other eventually. So that should sort those rankings out a little bit better. But at number one here, defending their thrown their crown here in the power rankings is Palmer Ridge. Simon says, quote, they go ahead and prove just why they are the favorites here in 4A and why they deserve to be number one by beating Ponderosa by two scores, end quote. Look, I, I talked about it. Gator Robinson was one of the playmaker of the week candidates, but this defense played really well. Uh, KJ Smedley, who's a Northern Colorado commit, congratulations on that, had an interception. Chris Rice also had an interception. This defense uh, was producing Chris Rice actually having the only defensive touchdown for Palmer Ridge and you know just proving that they are a championship quality so in the muddled uh, 4a rankings here we have number one Palmer Ridge then tied for second Fruita Monument Broomfield and Ponderosa all here at number two after that it jumps straight to number five Pueblo West then tied for six you have Denver South and Loveland at number eight Montrose and then tied for ninth Bear Creek and Vista Ridge don't worry. There's still only 10 teams here. There's just a bunch of ties. But uh, yeah, 4A, it's a little bit tight. But uh, Palmer Ridge kind of in a league of their own at the top of 4A here for now. And finally here in 5A, speaking of league of their own, we keep Cherry Creek here at number one. They get a dominant win over Regis Jesuit where they showed their run game is one of the best in the state and their front seven is truly elite. Then at number two, we got Columbine. They, Simon says, quote, they slaughtered Fort Collins and did not feel bad about it at all. They have one of the most dominant front sevens next to Cherry Creek, and this year it may seem like the strongest front sevens will be the strongest teams in 5A, end quote. And number three, we see eye to eye here on Valor Christian and at number five, Ralston Valley. Look, uh, Valor Christian, Simon says, quote, Gabe Sajak finally rushed for over 100 yards and a touchdown in a big time performance against Ralston Valley. This Valor team is turning a corner, winning a great bounce back game as they will now enter league play against some teams in the top 10, uh, end quote. And I agree, look, the comeback is what makes this such an important win for Valor. I think that, you know, this shows an acceptance and trust between the players and the coaches here in where they've just struggled to establish a rhythm. Look, they finally started Weiner here, and I think that he's going to be a difference maker, especially once he gets going in the passing game. I think that he's going to be big time, but... In the meantime, I think that just his edge and confidence as a three-star guy 
could go a long ways for this Valor team that looks a bit more like Valor following that comeback win over Ralston. Ralston, we only bumped them down one spot after losing a close one. Uh, they have got to finish off this game against Valor, in my opinion. But Simon says, quote, they should be a threat to all contenders moving forward, end quote. And I do agree with that. Ralston Valley, they are definitely in this mix with these top four teams. Now, at tied for fifth here, we have Pine Creek and Regis Jesuit here. Uh, I had Regis ranked at six. Simon has them ranked a little bit higher here. And so, you know, tied at five, Pine Creek, Simon says, quote, they played in the Fog Bowl where it was extremely difficult to see even 15 yards in front of you. Uh, still, you know, one loss is better than two, which is what Regis has right below them. Now, I have Regis just ranked ahead of Pine Creek because uh, I think that their losses are quality out of state and then to Cherry Creek versus Pine Creek's losses to Valor. So that's kind of the way that I viewed it and why I have Regis ranked just ahead of Pine Creek here. Now, um, Simon says, for Regis, they get their second loss of the season, but they lose in a big way. Uh, Cherry Creek's passing game didn't even really get going until the end, and Regis just could not get it going, end quote. Now, I, I've seen Regis beat Valor, and Valor beat Pine Creek is kind of the circle that I'm looking at right now, but uh, definitely subject to change depending on how Regis fares down the stretch of this season. Now, at number seven, we have Thunder Ridge. Simon says, quote, a close win against Chap moves them to 5-0, but they face rivals Mountain Vista, who will surely challenge this team offensively more than most teams they've faced in the first five. Keeping an eye out here, end quote. I personally had Thunder Ridge at number five for their 5-0 record, uh, considering that they're one of the only undefeated teams in this top 10. But I can totally see that the quality of their wins maybe isn't what blows Simon away here. At number eight, no disagreements from us here. Grandview, um, look, I'll, I'll be at the Grandview versus Eagle Crest game. That's going to be a huge game in league and one where Grandview can establish their place in the top 10 or could potentially fall out of the top 10 if they aren't careful. Uh, Simon says, quote, they enter league play here with only one loss on their record, end quote. And uh, yeah, Grandview, they're a very solid football team. They get a dominant win over Pomona as they should this past week and uh, look ready for league. At number nine, we got Rock Canyon. They're entering league play undefeated. Do not overlook this Highlands Ranch team. Don't get too cocky or too confident and uh, just play your brand of football and you could win this game. But Highlands Ranch is going to test this Rock Canyon team up front. And I mean, look, we got three teams from this league in the top 10 between Valor, Thunder Ridge, and Rock Canyon. Look, Highlands Ranch is not a bad squad, and uh, Castleview has some athletes as well, so this will be a fun ride. And at number 10, we have Fairview following their win over Douglas County. So, just to recap, at number 10, Fairview, number 9, Rock Canyon, number 8, Grandview, number 7, Thunder Ridge, tied for 5th is Regis Jesuit and Pine Creek, at 4, Ralston Valley, at 3, Valor Christian, number 2, Columbine, and number 1, currently in a league of their own, in my opinion, Cherry creek for our 5a rankings and that'll do it for this episode of playmakers corner thank you all so much for tuning in to our weekly recap please stay tuned for weekly recaps on tuesdays where we talk thursday friday saturday games playmakers of the week and power rankings if you have any thoughts comments concerns questions or you know potential disagreements please respectfully comment them as we do put in a lot of work for just the three of us covering 200 or so teams 
here in Colorado on the 1A through 5A levels on our social medias, whether that's at Playmaker Corner on Twitter, Playmaker's Corner on Facebook, or Playmaker's Corner on Instagram. You can find us on all of those. You could look at quick highlight recaps of games on our TikTok, Playmaker's Corner. And on that TikTok, you can also find the ending of the Pueblo South versus Pueblo East game. So go ahead and check that out on there or YouTube where you can find us at Playmaker's Corner. We are also on Twitch Playmaker's Corner. We haven't streamed in a little bit, but we usually do that more in the off season. So find us on all of those. Subscribe, like, do what you got to do on all of those platforms. Follow us for announcements for all of our episodes that we do post on Anchor. That goes to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or basically anywhere you listen to podcasts. And wherever you do listen to podcasts, go ahead and follow, like, or subscribe to us on those so you get notifications for all of our latest episodes. I have been one of your hosts for this episode, Cody Stoffer, and peace.